Hello and welcome back to Making the Argument. Over the last couple of weeks, we have gone over some pretty interesting topics with respect to directions that the right could go, things that are happening within our countries, predictions for 2024. Today, what we're going to cover is the all-important question, and that is, can the right make a comeback. So we're going to specifically discuss what that actually looks like. We're going to talk about the players. We're going to talk about the conditions. We're going to talk about the actions that are needing. And if you stick with us, we're also going to consider a fourth category that I think is going to be uh, maybe, maybe a little bit spicy. So all of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument, powered by Good Ranchers. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's episode, we've got a great topic that's been inspired by a lot of people in our community. So if you are not already a member of our community, you can go down to the link in the description, join our community chat there. We would love to get to know you. Like I said, there's been some great conversations happening, and let's get right into the show. All right. I am your host, Nick Freitas. Cannot be in the studio because I'm down in Richmond right now. Uh, unfortunately, not with us today is my beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees. But we still, of course, have our resident historian, our political prognosticator, Master Hines. How are you doing, Christian? I'm doing well. This is our first episode ever where everybody on the show is in a completely different place. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit crazy. And, of course, we have our producer of producers, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Nick. Thank you so much. All right, let's go ahead and kick this off. So first things first, let, let's kind of define our terms. And when we talk about can the right make a comeback, what do we mean by that? Because obviously we've talked about some bad directions that the right could potentially go. We want to avoid those. Namely, we don't want some version of right-wing authoritarianism, right? We don't want some form of right-wing reactionaryism that leads to you know, the, the um, degrading of individual liberty, of property rights, of free market economics. So when we talk about a resurgency of the right or the right making and combat, what we're talking about, I think in the, in the simplest terms is, um, you know, respect for individual liberty, respect for property rights, respect for free market economics, um, to the extent that, you know, obviously the government exists, it exists, uh, just big enough to accomplish it's very, very enumerated duties within the Constitution. That's the, the federal government. And then again, that the state governments would also reflect those same characteristics, right? Um, not trying to micromanage our lives, not trying to indoctrinate our, our children, not trying to control our health care, not trying to micromanage the economy. That's the sort of, of right we're talking about, right? We want something far more in line as far as government structure, um, you know, with, with what the founders intended, setting up a constitutional republic, uh, with democratic processes that, again, the, I, I said this today when I was talking to a group, the, the most unique thing about the United States is not, you know, our democracy, right? The most unique thing about the United States is that it was, I, I think, arguably the first time in history that a government was established the way it was with the emphasis on protecting God-given rights and limiting, severely limiting government power, Right. So that's the sort of return. That's the sort of comeback that we're fighting for here that we would like to see. And what we're going to do is we're going to get into what we think is necessary to do that and whether or not we think it's possible. And then I want to add this one disclaimer. Right. We're, Christian and I, Hamilton, we're, we're all going to talk about things today. And, and a lot of this is us performing what we think is the, the best analysis possible based off of our experience within politics, our experience with respect to economics, our experience, you know, things like the military, um, you know, combat, foreign policy. We're, we're going to take a look at all of these things. We're going to take a look at the players and then we're going to ask ourselves, you know, what do we think is actually going on? What do we think is, is the strengths and weaknesses of the various institutions and people that we're going to talk about? So please keep this in mind as you're listening. 
just because we predict something or just because we analyze something a certain way doesn't mean we necessarily like it. Doesn't mean that's the reality we want. We're just trying to be very you know, honest with ourselves about where we think we're at, where we think we need to go and how eventually we get there. And so I just want to throw out that disclaimer. And with that, we're going to start with the first of our, our three primary categories, right? We're talking about the players, we're talking about the conditions, and we're talking about the necessary actions. And so as we look at the players, right, there's there's various categories that we have, right? There's political players, there's uh, players within the financial or the, the economic world, there's players within media, the arts and entertainment, academia. Um, there's also people that just kind of have general influence along those areas. Like I'm, I, when I think of this, I think of people like Elon Musk or Joe Rogan. I mean, these are these are guys that, um, yeah, to some degree, Elon Musk obviously you know, very very successful businessman and entrepreneur. Um, but by the same token, has a lot of generalized influence. I think beyond just that space, someone like Joe Rogan would be the same. Maybe someone like Jordan Peterson. Right. So these are all these are all things that we want to kind of consider here. So the first category that we're going to start with, though, is the political. So, um, you know, Christian, when you think about the political players on the right, um, who's I mean, obvious. I mean, there's some obvious ones. Right. But who do you think steps out as people that are going to play a positive role or excuse me, going to play a major role on the right? And what do you see as potential strengths and weaknesses in there? So. I, I like that we're starting with this, especially because the Republican primaries are beginning right now. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, we're kicking off the 2024 election cycle. I do think that most people, you know, obviously are going to gravitate towards those that are running on the GOP side. So, you know, Trump, DeSantis, Vivek. Um, and, and look, there's a lot from all three of those people that I like. There's also things from all three of them that I that I dislike. I, I think that the obvious natural conclusion is to go to people like that, those three, and I'm going to leave it at those three because I'm not a big Nikki Haley fan, um, and, and say that, you know, well, obviously only one of them is going to emerge as the nominee, but all three of them are going to have some sort of role to play exclusively on the political side. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, it's not just the executive branch. There's also Congress, and unfortunately, uh, we're, we're running really short on on great star players on the right right now within Washington, D.C. I mean, I could probably count on one hand uh, the number yeah. of people that I would say are like actual champions of the right rather than grifters or <laughs> or or just don't know what they're doing there. You know what I mean? Like like the, the, the list basically begins and ends with like Thomas Massey and Rand Paul. Right. You, you could throw in somebody like Mike Lee in Virginia. You could probably throw in somebody like Bob Good. Um, I know that he gets a lot of hate, but I've ben, yet ben to Klein's find my boy too. <laughs> yeah, Ben, ben Klein. Although Ben Klein keeps a low profile, right? Yeah, he and does. so, he so does. there, you know, there, there's different types of politicians. In fact, one of the things that that they talk about in a lot of uh, conservative activist like schooling is that that they break it down into five categories, and you know what it is, right? You know, you have the double minuses, the single minuses, the zeros, the single pluses, the double pluses, and then a sixth category being a champion. Yeah, and. You know, without going into super detail what that means, there's a lot of people in D.C. that are single, you know, pluses. There's even some people that are double pluses, but there's very few people that are champions in the form of somebody like Rand Paul or Thomas Massey. Like Thomas Massey got up there in the middle of COVID when everybody, including our own president on the Republican side, were saying things like we need massive COVID spending bills. We need to turn on the money printers. We need all this welfare, you know, corporate. We need stimmy checks, everything. And Massey was like, this is going to be the largest wealth transfer in modern history. And just wait, we'll find out in very short order. And everybody lambasted him for it. And yet he did it anyway. 
Yeah, so he was right. There's that's no what I mean by like champions as somebody like that, because he was yeah. absolutely right. So to answer your your question in a little bit more condensed format, honestly, I think that there's something to be said about, you know, all these figures that I've thrown out. But, you know, there's also something to be said about the fact that we've brought up repeatedly on this podcast that no politician is coming to save you. Yeah. And, and you yourself, in the capacity of being a politician, will tell people that. And it's not because you don't want to save people. The whole reason you got into politics was to try to preserve, you know, the very founding principles of this country. I remember being in the room with you when you first announced that you were going to run for delegate. What, like eight or nine years ago at this point? This is my ninth session. Yeah. And but, you know, more than anybody else in Virginia, possibly, especially being there in the legislature right now, that if, if we are looking for a political figure to come and save us, we've already lost. No, I, I think that's probably one of the most important things that we should get across here. It's not that it's not that the the it's not that the players within the political realm are irrelevant or inconsequential. They're just not sufficient. And and the thing that you know I've always I've been concerned about, and we talked about this a little uh, on the previous episode, was this whole idea of this, this concept of well, I showed up and I voted and I supported the guy, and wh- wh- why haven't they fixed this? It's like well, because our one our, our system isn't set up. To do that, it wasn't even set up to do that by the founders, where it's like, oh, just elect a new president, they'll fix it. But but even with like the massive bureaucracy and everything, uh, it, it has become very problematic. I mean, as I'm looking at the political players, obviously you have to throw Donald Trump there as, as probably the most consequential politician on the right in the United States. Um, and the reason why I think that's that's obviously relevant is because. He's the he's the one um, he's the one Republican within the primary that has a built in like almost guaranteed base, like very, very significant base. When you look at like Ron DeSantis has something of a base, um, you know, Nikki Haley, I don't think really has so much a base as she has a lot of people on the Republican side that maybe don't want Trump, maybe don't like DeSantis either. And they see her as kind of a return to like the Bush era version of the Republican Party of or what we would historically called kind of the Rockefeller wing of the Republican Party, where. You know they, they've kind of given in to the whole idea of of big government. Um, the difference is is they they think they're going to conduct the you know the train ride a little bit better, and they they haven't totally bought into the idea of seizing the means of production. Um, I, I mean, we we had an episode earlier in the year where I said that you know look, I I like Ron DeSantis. I don't think he should have run this time because I think the built in. Uh, Republican base for Trump was so overwhelming that they weren't going to accept anyone else. It was going to make very, it was going to make it very, very difficult for anybody to get uh, a leg up in the primaries. And that essentially because of the way Trump campaigns, Ron DeSantis, no matter how similar they might be in certain areas, was just going to get, you know, run through the ringer. And I, and I think that's largely played out. Like I stand by that earlier prediction. Um, Having said that, I still think DeSantis has the, the ability to be a, a, a major factor, um, at least within Republican Party politics, for the for the let's say the immediate future. The the real question will be what happens uh, after this next election cycle. Um, you know, Nikki Haley. I, I agree with your assessment there. I agree with Ram. You know, I, I I don't want Nikki Haley to be the nominee. I I do think she is a return to a, an era of big government Republicans that I I don't I don't want to see a return to. Um, Vivek, I think, is interesting because. He, he's probably been the most effective, like just outsider coming onto the scene since Donald Trump. 
Um, and, and Donald Trump had a lot more of a lead up, right? We all knew who Donald Trump was when he decided to run for president the second time. Vivek, nobody knew who that dude was until five minutes before he got on a debate stage, but he was such an effective communicator that he kind of commanded a lot of attention. And, and one of the reasons why I think Vivek, regardless of the people that are going to say, oh, you can't trust him. Again, I'm providing analysis. I'm not providing an endorsement. He's, he's an extremely effective communicator um, in, in a way that, that that is very, very different from Trump, right? Trump is very, very good at appealing to the base. I think Trump is also very, very good on appealing to people that just want straight up honesty, uh, one, one of the best assessments that I've, I've ever seen of Donald Trump actually came from Dave Chappelle. And Dave Chappelle, as, as part of his you know uh, comedy routine, got up there and he said, he goes, the, the moment I knew Donald Trump was going to be a lot more successful than anyone was giving him credit for was at the debate with Hillary when Hillary was saying, you don't pay your taxes. And instead of Trump doing the, oh, that's ridiculous, he said, that makes me smart. <laughs> he, goes, he goes, yes, I'm taking advantage of the same um, you know, tax breaks that all of her donors take advantage of. And if she wanted to change it, she could have changed it, but she doesn't and she won't. And so basically what he was saying was, he, or the way Dave Chappelle described it, it was the first time somebody came out and said, the system is rigged. I know it's rigged because I use it. Right. And, and again, there was a lot of um, grace given to Donald Trump for that because he hadn't been in politics. He, he hadn't been in a position to be able to change the, those policies or whatnot. The, the politicians tell everybody working in the economy, these are the rules of the game. And so Trump played by him and he didn't make apologies for it. And, and I think that raw honesty uh, appealed to a lot of people that was not just the Republican base. That was the part that a lot of people that were the typical political political pundits, I don't think understood, especially at a time when when what we typically call blue collar voters had essentially been completely abandoned by the Democratic Party. I, I I don't think anybody really holds out a lot. I mean, there's still like the unions and one some of the big union players, but most of the union players are the AFL CIO, right? We're not we're not talking about private sector unions. These are government sector unions. And and so I, I think what ends up happening is you have DeSantis, who I think overall has governed very effectively in Florida, very effectively, in order to actually build up and expand his base down there. Um there were certain things that Donald Trump did that he, he, he governed quasi effectively. There was other things he did not do well. And this is something that people are going to have to just, just hear me out. He didn't do as well on, on guns as he could have. Um, he, he's, he's clearly, I mean, I think he did an excellent job with some of his Supreme court picks. Um, but, but even that was, you know, again, it didn't mean that he had like this in, enduring, you know, commitment to life, if that's a, a major issue for you. And then when it came to the Federal Reserve, he was way off. Like, I'm sorry, he, he was wrong on that. And, and we need to at least acknowledge that that was, yes, that is not the sort of policy that we should be in, engaging in if we're really for, you know, strong free market economics, if, if we actually want to push back against all these socialist tendencies that we see uh, within the Democratic Party. Um, and then again, with Vivek, you have someone that I think when, when he talks, he, he's actually able to appeal to a broader audience, which explains some of his success. And so I, I see components in all three of these candidates, which suggests to me that they all have the ability to be major players. The question is, is will they kill themselves in an attempt to be the one? Um, and, and I hope they don't. Um, but those are, those are who I think are the three most consequential players on the right within American politics. Now, when I go overseas, obviously the person that I think is the most interesting is Javier Malay, because that that's the, 
he, he is arguably the most liberty minded and the most uh, dedicated to like a true interpretation of, of free market economics, which for us is the Austrian school. And he's doing it in a country that is way farther down the line than we are with respect to, um, you know, a, a country that has essentially tried to, you know, centrally plan their economy. The government interferes in everything. He, they had 21 agencies. He immediately ripped it down to nine, like it's one of his first acts. You, so you know it's going to be really interesting. Recently, Nick? What's that? I, I don't know if you've, if you follow because you're, you're, you're in Richmond right now. So yeah, I don't expect you to be scrolling Twitter every single hour, but um, it was like the, the past week or so he deregulated large portions of the housing market in yeah. Argentina because the previous Peronist government had like all these rent and price controls mm-hmm. that, that sent basically the cost of housing and the cost of rent through the roof because nobody wanted to rent a house with strict price, you know, strict rent controls. Yeah. Yeah. And Why would so you want he, to build more if you're not going to be able to you know recover costs? Yes. And so he, he basically looked at every single regulation at the, you know, at, at the federal level in Argentina and, and just ripped them all out. And yeah. it's like the price of housing has fallen like over 20% now since he took office just over a month ago. Well, and, and that's what I think makes Javier Malay. Like, I honestly think the most interesting politician in the world right now is Javier Malay uh, for, for what we might call the right or the, the libertarian leaning right or whatnot. I think it's got to be Javier Malay because he is, he is actually one, he has the power through the executive branch in Argentina and he has, they have significantly more power than our own president does. But two, he's actually making good on it. He didn't just say these things to rally up the base and get elected. He's actually making good and, and executing his policy the way he's, he said he would, at least from what I can see at this point. And uh, I think it's going to be a, a really interesting thing to watch. But those, those would be, those are my three domestic politicians and my one, uh, international one that I, I think are the, the guys to watch. Um, let, let's move real quick to uh, – I've got a quick question for you both yeah. that I'd love to propose, and that is for conservatism to make a comeback, does it require a politician to be in the lead? And here's why I ask that question, because if we look back to the presidential election in 2016, the folks who we would consider to be the leaders of conservative values or the folks who were defining those conservative values, it would have been – Ted Cruz, Donald Trump, Rand Paul, and all three of those people, and there might have been some more, but all three of those people were in the race for president. And then if we look at 2020, Donald Trump obviously was the leader of the conservative movement and the one who was defining what conservatism meant at that point from the national stage. But now it seems like we are lacking an individual who is helping to define that. And it even seems like Trump, as much as he is campaigning right now, has kind of taken a step back from the limelight and isn't, isn't doing so much to define what that is. And so, again, my question for you both is, does it require a politician, does it require someone running for office to be at the helm of defining what conservatism is and put us in a position for conservatism to make a comeback? I, I think it's – look, I, I would like to sit here and say that, no, it's not necessary. Um but what we've seen more often than not within history is that it, it actually is. Um, and, and that's because people do, people do follow ideas, but everyone looks for some sort of manifestation of those ideas uh, in the form of someone who is going to act. And when we're talking about, you know, conservatism or the right or, you know, liberty or whatnot, we, we generally associate those things with the people that are able to engage within a, a political sphere. So I, I don't think I'll put it this way. I, I do. I tend to think that as much as I don't want it to be so, it is a necessary component. It's not a sufficient one. Um, I, I so I'll, I'll leave it at that and let Christian uh, agree or disagree or 
to to add to what Nick said, and I think that Nick is is you know kind of hitting the nail on the head right there. It's it's necessary but not sufficient. Remember when I was saying that like no politician is coming to save you? It's no politician is coming to save you because a and we've seen it. It's not enough to just have the right politician at the helm when you've lost all the other institutions out there. We've been through that before, right? Ronald Reagan was on at least on paper quite quite a conservative president. Now there's plenty of things that I didn't like about Reagan. I mean, he pushed amnesty. He wasn't as good on guns as I wish he was. There was some other stuff too. But overall, when you look at the other presidents within a 50-year time span, you know, of of Reagan, he was easily the best. But let's look at where the country is today, right? The country has massively moved to the left since him. And I think a huge reason why is because Reagan couldn't have an enduring legacy when nobody, nobody could have an enduring legacy when every institution in the country outside of the political realm is controlled by your, by your ideological opposition. Mm -hmm. And so the reason that I say no politician is coming to save you is because they can't, they can prevent a catastrophe, but they can't restore what we want to see restored. And that won't happen until the other institutions out there beyond the political realm have also been taken back from, let's be honest, the, the cultural Marxists that have hijacked them. And if, if, if what we want here, to harken back to our previous episode, not the one that Nick did the interview with Rudyard, but the one before that about what if yeah. the right goes bad, to harken back to that, if our goal here is a restoration of 1776 and an avoidance of 27 B.C., and, and for, for, for those of you who, who, who want to get what the reference is, that's when Augustus, you know, that's when Octavian becomes Augustus, right? If we want to avoid, you know, the, the end of the Republic and the beginning of the Principate or whatever the equivalent would be in the 21st century, and we want to instead see a revival of the classical American tradition in the mold of Washington and Jefferson and Madison and the other founding fathers, if that is our goal, then it is not enough to just elect the right guy. It's required, but it is not enough. It, it extends far beyond there because as we saw with Trump in the White House, ultimately there was actually very little he could do against the federal leviathan, against the bureaucracy, the administrative state, against all the other institutions outside of the government that were arrayed against him. There was an article, and I, I wish that I could bring it up, and I can't remember where it was published from. Maybe at some point we'll actually do an episode where we talk about it more in detail. There was an article that came out a few years ago that talked about how all these organizations and institutions and politicians and influencers and media personalities and businessmen all got together in order to stop Trump from winning in 2022. And it was almost like an admission from the mainstream media that like, yeah, we did rig 2020, just not in the way that many Republicans <laughs> think that 2020 yeah. was rigged. Everybody thinks that it was like ballots being changed when in reality it was rigged before a single ballot was even cast. And if you want to avoid a situation like that, then you have to fight beyond, you have to fight in the political realm. You can never give it up, right? But, but it's not enough to just win an election. You can win an election all day long, but we know that politics is downstream from culture. So what matters ultimately is the culturally shaping institutions that will eventually impact the political realm. Yeah. I, I think the other thing too, and to, just to put it like a final pin on the po the political side, the other players that are going to be fighting against um, kind of the, the resurgence or, or conservative resurgence or right-wing resurgence, um, I, I think, you know, I really don't think Joe Biden's much of a factor. I don't think Kamala Harris is much of a factor. I think Bernie Sanders is kind of moving out of, I, I think you're going to need to look at to some degree, the, the squad, not because I believe that they themselves are going to attain some sort of, 
you know, superior position, but I believe they're going to continue to be like a, a disruptive element. And there's going to be more people getting elected that kind of, kind of share that. I think when you look at, you know, potential power players, um, in, in, at least in, the, in America, uh, Gavin Newsom, uh, Michelle Obama, I, I think th- those are the two that really come to, to come to mind on, on that one. Um, I know we got to move on cause I, I we got to, several more here to hit when it comes to things like high finance people with within high finance are people that have a great deal of power um, with respect to um, kind of kind of the marketplace and lending practices what's interesting here is that I think this is a huge and this also kind of plays into conditions as well but like when I look at the major players within high finance whether it's BlackRock or Bank of America um, or gosh even the the Federal Reserve um, I, I actually don't see this is this is probably one of the scariest areas uh, I think for us on the right is that I don't see many institutions within the banking world which is kind of critical uh, to your economy, especially the way it's it's you know the the modern economy. I just don't see many players on the right. Um, I, I think it's and again I think that poses a huge problem for us because uh, again BlackRock. Um, you know, BlackRock, Bank of America, and, and some of the other major banks out there, Deutsche Bank, et, et cetera. I mean, they, they seem to be fairly unified around this whole concept of ESG, um, you know, which is, which is the whole in, in, um, environmental um, – oh, gosh, what's the S? <laughs> I just environmental, forgot. social, and governance. Social and governance, yeah. Um, which th- think of I, ESG to me is, is a little bit kind of like DEI, but, but, uh, more on the, on the market side as opposed to the, the education side, although the DEI works as well in there as well. Um, but, but again, a, a, like a lot of private companies, I've talked to people who are very, very strong, uh, either conservatives or libertarians who have companies that will tell you, they're like, Nick, if, if we want to go public or if we want to get the next round of investment to take our, our business up to the next level, we have to have, you know, fairly good ESG compliance. And um, so I, I think all of those have play a major role on the other side as basically a roadblock to a, a conservative resurgence. Now, I will say this. I think the sort of crap that you're seeing with things like Delta um, is you know, where, where they're sitting there and they're, they're highlighting their DEI. Uh, and this goes into higher ed as well, which we'll get to next. But th- this, this overemphasis on you know, we really don't care about your competency. We, we care about whether or not, you know, you, you fit the right progressive narrative or and really specifically the right woke narrative. And you see the same thing with ESG where it's like, well, who cares about whether or not you can actually, um, you know, take care of your shareholders. You need to take care of your stakeholders. And, and we've, we've done a whole episode before on this whole idea out of like from Klaus Schwab and the WEF and stakeholder capitalism. But to, to give you just a quick idea, shareholder capitalism is you're an investor in a company. And when you invest your money, you expect a return on that investment. And, and this is, this is the way that shareholder capitalism works. And it's the appropriate way. You have skin in the game. You've invested, you've assumed risk. And the obligation of the people that you've invested with is to provide the products and services in such a way as to get a return on that investment. Stakeholder capitalism is this idea that you know, other people that are, quote, affected by you know, the company or affected by the goods and services you provide, they now get a say. And interestingly enough, whenever they, you know, they talk about stakeholders, um, you know, they never seem to mean for their own organizations. Like, for instance, if you look at the governing board of the WEF, 
I, I guarantee you they're not looking at everyone the WEF potentially affects and saying, oh, yeah, you get a say on the governing board and how we make our decisions. No, no, no. It's always something that somebody else needs to do. And, and the problem is, is that essentially, if you look at what they call stakeholder capitalism, and then you look at the only effective way to legally enforce it, what you really end up with is more of like, at the very least, a fascist approach to economic policy, where, where now the government is coming in and, and arranging cartels and determining what your labor practices look like. And, and I don't mean just, you know, hey, you got to have a five-day work week or pay overtime. I'm talking about like getting very, very specific and granular with the way companies operate. And again, there's there's two systems that have done this. One was socialist and communist systems, which should just simply seize the means of production and and you know turned everything into a government owned entity, or fascist you know economic policies where there was this there, there was this merging of the the what they often refer to as the corporate state. Um, and so I, I find it fascinating that people that are usually you know you know scared the most about about fascism are the same people that seem to want to usher it in under this whole concept of, of stakeholder capitalism. So I'm just going to go with the when I look at high finance and when I look at the economy, the 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 people that I say are, are more likely than not operating in opposition is, you know, again, guys like Klaus Schwab, the WEF, BlackRock, Bank of America, Deutsche Bank. There, there's certainly others out there as well. And then the Federal Reserve uh, overall, because of its control over monetary policy within the United States, which of course is the world's reserve currency, and everything's kind of aligned against us on that one. And and with some you know notable exceptions, you know Elon Musk and, and stuff like that, we don't seem to have a lot of you know allies within corporate boards. Now, one thing that's interesting, and this is something to watch, right? Because you got like Elon Musk versus everything else we just talked about, uh, guys like Bill Ackerman who used to be a huge liberal donor. If there was a liberal cause, he couldn't wait to throw, you know, tens of millions, I mean, of dollars at it. Um, the whole thing that went down in higher ed really caused uh, Bill Ackerman to reconsider how he was investing his money. And if you want a good example of the power that, that you know, an individual can have, when when he decided he was no longer investing in that, um, that that actually that actually sent shockwaves through higher ed, which was pretty important. And and this is one of those things too. When we talk about you know what what can we as individuals do, um, you can reinvest your money in good ranchers. That's right. Like if you're looking for a way right now to fight back and to in, you know ensure that our way of life, that capitalism, uh, that meat itself is not turned into some sort of tool for socialist propaganda. If you don't, for instance, want to eat crickets one day uh, in lieu of steak, which I'm sure all the higher ups will still be eating at our expense, then we need to find the companies that are actually doing a good job. They're not just out there. They're not just out there waving the flag and demanding that you buy from them because they're patriotic. They're actually producing a good product, right? They're beating out the competition, but they're doing it while at the same time they respect our values and they produce a superior product. So go to goodranchers.com. They got a special deal right now. If you sign up for that deal in January, you sign up for one of the subscriptions, they're going to send you free chicken with each order in that subscription for a year. That's like a $180 value, right? And it is really, 
really good stuff because unlike some of the other organizations out there that are constantly trying to get you to eat meat that isn't meat or they're telling you that their meat is raised in a way that it really isn't good ranchers they, they like to brag about this they say people always come for the steak and then they ended up staying for the poultry well now you get a chance to try both of them all right goodranchers.com promo code nick you're going to get a special deal right you're going to get free shipping delivered to your door Right, and you sign up for that subscription. That's again $180 value. Can't beat it. Goodranchers.com promo code Nick. Go ahead and check them out and support a great company. I was about right. to joke that that's the only stakeholder capitalism that I support. <laughs> <laughs> before, before we move on, guys, I just want to tell you that this morning I, I, I've had kind of a relocation change, which we'll talk about in the coming months. But anyway, I have put in multiple orders to Good Ranchers for chicken, to, you know, for Christian to make his buffalo chicken mac and whatnot. But I'm, you know, I'm getting back into lifting, and I want to increase my steak intake significantly. So I went on Good Ranchers this morning. I selected the Cattleman, which is all steak, and I put it in my checkout. Went through the checkout, saw that it added this, the chicken, the free chicken, to each order, and then I put in promo code Nick, twenty dollars off. Pretty happy. I'm excited mm -hmm. for my package to get here. Yeah. So, all right. So let's go. So that was kind of the, the economy side. We do see a lot of companies that I think are standing up, starting to push back. Obviously, Twitter was a, was a huge deal with Elon Musk, probably the biggest example I can think of, of, of a major company pushing back, showing that they can do a good job um, while not infringing on our speech or automatically colluding with the government to deplatform everyone who disagrees with them. I mean, Christian, do you see, do you see anybody... I kind of listed out all the, what I think are the worst players on, on the left on this one and maybe some of the positive players on the right. Do you see anybody else in the right and specifically with kind of like that high finance or the ability to actually provide like seed money into entrepreneurial endeavors? Do you see anybody on the right that you look at as a potential player? Um, so I, I think that, you know, you, you brought up uh Bill Ackman, by the way, I'm going to correct you. It's Ackman, not Ackman. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's all good. Um, I just wanted to bring it up before the comments ended up brigading us about, yeah. <laughs> about getting his name wrong. But yeah. like, I, I was pleasantly surprised that, that he turned on Harvard with the DEI stuff. But I have to say, like within a week of him doing that, he's then posting on Twitter about how he's giving a million dollars to Dean Phillips, the Democratic congressman <laughs> that's running against Joe Biden, who has yeah. a whole DEI statement on his own website. Yeah. So, like, for some people, old habits die hard, right? You know, Bill Ackman has has been a Democrat for a long time. He supported left-wing causes for a long time. He obviously, for justifiable reasons, got upset at what was happening at Harvard, his former alma mater, that he had, he had donated a significant amount of money to and rightfully called them out. But it's not like he suddenly became a right-wing conservative hero overnight. Now, yeah. who knows? Maybe he'll continue to go through this, this transformation. You see it a lot. It, this is actually a phenomenon that might even deserve its own episode at some point. That why does it seem like every hero on the right was on the left five minutes ago? Um, <laughs> because it's not just him, right? It's so many other well, people, many of whom I, I greatly respect and admire. But I, I, so so he's a bit in a gray area. I think that he's he's doing the right thing by pushing back against DEI within academia, but he needs to realize. The DEI problem is not just embedded within academia. It is everywhere, and it's being yeah. per perpetrated by politicians just as much as it is universities, just as much as it is corporations. And and so setting that aside, I, I think that Elon Musk obviously deserves some recognition here for, for what he's done, not not really in high finance, but more on the media side. Now, granted, yeah. he is he's the wealthiest person in the world, right? He's a, he's a su successful entrepreneur, but his, his biggest 
impact on this is not just him making hundreds of billions of dollars. His biggest impact on this is him purchasing Twitter. I, I think yeah. that that has been a complete game changer. And, and we might get to that later in, in this episode when we talk about the media. So I'll save that for later. Well, let, I do think that to answer your question specifically about finance, right? You brought up an important point about things like Bank of America and BlackRock. And, and it's like every single institution on Wall Street that, that controls things like loans and savings and stuff yep. like that, right? You know, the, the, the type of entities that you go to to get a mortgage um, or to get a business loan or, or just to, to exchange money, right? Like we, we saw in the UK, Nigel Farage's bank account kicked him out because they didn't like his politics. Mm -hmm. That's incredibly dangerous. I, I think that there's one guy who kind of has a solution to this, not a perfect solution, but at least a partial solution to this. And the funny thing is, we don't even know who he is. And his name is Satoshi <laughs> oh, yeah. Nakamoto. Yeah. The guy that founded Bitcoin, the pseudonym. His, his real name is almost certainly not Satoshi Nakamoto. That's just what he called himself in the internet forums over a decade ago when he was building out Bitcoin. And then he vanished into the ether. We have no clue who he is. We don't even know if he's one person. He could have been a team of people. We have no what? idea who he is. But the guy who invented Bitcoin did us all a great service because what it did was, and, and it's not about Bitcoin. It's, it's actually yeah. about crypto in general. So I'm not saying go out there and buy Bitcoin. I own some, but it, it, it's not about that. What, what it is is the emergence of decentralized currencies is a game changer. And it's not when, just on the finance side. It's also against the Federal Reserve. It's about preserving your purchasing power. It's the same reason why people go out there and buy gold. But who wants to haul gold around all day long? Well, this is another one of those parts, too, where people watching this are going to be like, oh, no, Bitcoin's bad. Or like, Again, we're, we're <laughs> it, what I would ask everyone to do is, as they're watching this, regardless of how you feel about cryptocurrency specifically or regardless how you feel about it as a medium of exchange, because a, a lot of people don't use it as a medium of exchange. They use it as you know an investment or whatnot. And there, there's a lot of people that trash cryptocurrency for that. And, and look, I understand some of the arguments. I, I think the point that, that Christian and I are making here is that it, it's not about a particular type of crypto. It, it's about the idea of the, the concept of there being a currency that a government body can't control, right? That's the part that's so important here because guaranteed if you get to a point where all of a sudden, you know, and, and we see this now where they go to cashless currency and a lot of people too, I think get, get concerned when they think, you know, oh, no cash and, and Bitcoin's a part of that or uh, Ethereum's a part of that. It's like, look, the, the, the biggest issue is not so much whether or not something is cashless. The biggest issue is who controls it. And again, this, this idea of the, the government essentially having control over all of the currencies is kind of a, is, is a dangerous concept. And so the idea, anybody that's, that's coming along, and I might not always agree with their motives, or I might not like the way some of it's being used, but the point is, is that some sort of medium of exchange, which is not barter, right, and, and not based off of um, you know, what a, a government board or even an unelected body can arbitrarily do is, is pretty important when we talk about being able to engage in commerce, um, so yeah, I think that's, I think that's a good point. I'm glad you brought that one up. I want to, I want to jump to another uh, category right now. And that's, um, when it comes to education, I, I think one of the, obviously, as I look at, you know, higher ed across the board, as I look at public education, um, I, I see probably the, the two institutions, which are, are most in my mind, most responsible for where we're at right now and most responsible for the ascendancy of what we, you know, if, if we're talking about just straight up Marxism, if we're talking about kind of these, this modern neo-Marxist uh, ideas where it's kind of this convergence of 
um, you know, not just Marxism as a as a economic theory, um, and not just purely as a political theory, but as a larger economic, political, social uh, theory combined with identity. Um, I, I think that's a, a new component of this. When you look at critical theory, when you look at queer theory, when you look at kind of the addition of postmodernism, um, you know, that, that's kind of what we're fighting on right now. It's not even your traditional Marxism. It really is this, this neo-Marxist, um, concept that in, in the best way I think I could describe that is the reason why we call it neo-Marxist is because it's still, it's still, um, accepts certain core tenets of Marxism, but then it adds components of of critical theory. Where again, it's it's not just about economics being the primary, um, you know, determining determining component of a society, right? It's it's identity, it's race, it's sex, it's sexual expression. Like it's all of these things that you get bits from, like Herbert Marcuse or or Paulo Freire when it comes to the education component, or Antonio Gramsci when it talks about you know um, essentially subverting or replacing the culture associated with free markets or capitalism or private property rights, replacing that culture with one that is associated with Marxism or, or the Marxist explanation for the world. Um, so I, I think when you look at all of those things together, higher ed, you know, was, was first and foremost, because that's where these theories essentially gain traction um, within institutions. And then from higher ed, the people that basically are convinced of this way of thinking or this worldview end up going into media and into Hollywood and into politics and into public education. Um, and so I think that's what you see right now. And so obviously I think we, we certainly have our work cut out for us when it comes to both higher ed and, and government systems in part because I think the incentive structure is set up in such a way as to encourage that sort of, of thinking especially within government-run uh, educational institutions. Now, on the other side of that, what, what do I see as the major players? Um, I, I think there's, there's a couple areas where um, I, I do see conservatives fighting back in the realm of education. And interestingly enough, it's not so much within private schools, although, sometime, although there are definitely examples of that, whether it be you know, charter schools, which are really not private, they're more government-run schools, but but even with some of the traditional private schools, the, the left has managed to infiltrate there every bit as effectively as they have within a public school system. Um, I honestly think the the homeschooling world, to some degree the unschooling world, and then when I look at players like Corey DeAngelis, uh, Christopher Rufo, these were the guys that I think have done uh, the best job of shining a light on some of the things that were going on within our, our school system. And, and they were able to, you know, at the same time that everyone was telling us, nobody's doing that, that's not happening. They were able to basically show up with the receipts and say, yes, they are. Here's where it's happening. Here's how it's happening. Uh, I give James Lindsay a lot of credit uh, for this as well. If you look at his Marxification of education, um, he, he really, I, I think, whereas Christopher Rufo and uh, Corey DeAngelis did an excellent job of exposing what was there. Uh, James Lindsay has also done an excellent job of, of going back and, and looking at the the uh, path of how we got there um, and what it actually means and what the intentions are. So I, I think those three have been very influential with respect to identifying the philosophy behind what's, what's been going on within public education and higher ed. Um, and then I would say people that are creating alternatives. Um, interestingly enough, I, I think guys like Matt Boudreaux, 
I think guys like Tim Kennedy, right? Which, you know, Tim Kennedy, former SF guy, uh, former MMA fighter, um, you know, you, not the people you would necessarily expect to be some of the people leading the charge. And there's several others. Like I, I, I couldn't, I can't name them all off the top of my head right now, but the reason why like Matt Boudreaux, uh, there's another individual that we're going to be talking about that does, uh, it's called the classical learner. Um, there, there's also, uh, a, another, a woman that I follow on Instagram that has done some, she's a former, um, uh, principal. I really think it's going to be the homeschooling model and the co-op model, um, that is going to provide one of the best responses to what has essentially been a government, uh, takeover and effectively micromanagement of education. Um, I don't necessarily, again, I, I have, I think there's a lot of good private school models out there and there are a lot of good private schools out there, but I'm, I'm, what I'm most interested in right now is the, the co-op and, um, and the homeschool model. And again, I think some of the people I mentioned, um, and again, I think, I think it's going to take both. Like one is exposing the philosophy and what's actually going on. The other is providing an effective alternative that people feel safe enough to be able to leave something that they've always known and, and go into something else. And, and there's some, I think there's some really exciting, that's, that's one of the areas I'm most excited about because I honestly believe, and we'll get into this when we get into the conditions, um, that that's what's necessary in, in order to, to really make a, an effective turnaround. But that, that's kind of the people that I see as, as the players on both sides of this, the teachers unions and Randy Weingartner and ATF and all those, um, uh, or excuse me, AFT, the American Federation of Teachers, National Education Association. Those are the people on the left. Um, and on the right, again, Biggest players that I see, Corey DeAngelis, um, Thomas Sowell did some great work on this, but you know Thomas Sowell's in his 90s now. Um, you know, again, Christopher Rufo, uh, James Lindsay, and uh, and some others as well. I don't want to leave anybody out, but you know. And then again, when it comes to providing alternatives, I think there's some really exciting things there. And and you know, again, I'm I'm really fascinated by the some some of the work that Matt Boudreaux is doing. You know, I think that we left out, believe it or not, I think we left out Ron DeSantis in there. Because oh, go look, ahead. At, look at what DeSantis, well, <laughs> I just said what I thought. I'm waiting to hear what <laughs> yeah. you think. <laughs> I mean, look, look at look at what DeSantis did in Florida with the university system, yeah. just taking a hammer to their own DEI, you know, courses and policies within the university structure in the state, just just dismantling it and and calling out the universities for churning out Marxist indoctrinated students. I speaking of that. That is the biggest weakness that we have on the right when it comes to education. We have solutions to, you know, grade school. We have solutions to middle school. We have solutions to high school. It's called private schools. It's called homeschools. Those are exploding in growth. We do not have an answer to the university system, in part because we are funding the university system. Yeah. We are funding our ideological opposition rather than building our own institutions that do not teach wokeism, that do not teach intersectionality, intersectionality that do not teach cultural Marxism. Instead, we're funding the institutions that do teach that. Yeah. What every Republican should be doing when they take over in, in, in a, a state government, and unfortunately we can't do this in Virginia right now because we don't have control of the legislature, is we need to stop funding our, our, our opposition. And we should be taking that money from our own constituents and putting it towards universities that don't teach those things. Well, this I is would, something that Chris Rufo's talked about that we mm -hmm. need a revival of the the classically, you know, the classical uh, liberal arts college that doesn't have any of this ideological nonsense embedded within it, because yeah. we don't have that right now. We have liberty, and that's about it. 
And there's a yeah, lot of I mean, people we that have don't. Like Grove City College, we have Hillsdale, we, we have a couple of others out there. But like you said, it's like for every one we can name, they can name 20, right? Like easily. Easy. And they're, they're easily. prestigious like institutions. Now, the yeah. good news is, is that the, the veneer is being worn off on the prestige of some of these institutions. Yes, they have hundreds of years of history. Mm-hmm. But I'm sorry, when Harvard has thousands of students going out there on campus and physically intimidating students because they're not in favor of Hamas, right? (laughs) When you have hundreds, if not thousands of students at Harvard holding these rallies in support of Hamas and the Houthis of all people, right? That's now become the latest, you know, celebrity cause on the left is, is, is supporting a terrorist group that, that, you know, is engaging in a civil war in Yemen right now. They're not even the legitimate Yemeni government, but, but like, and and they're they're engaging in piracy in the Red Sea, and yet now they're they're heroes on the left. Why? Oh well, because they're against the Jews, and we've yeah. la- we've now shifted well, they're, they're the against Jews the oppressors. From, yeah, yeah, they, they've now moved the Jew- for a long time. Jews belonged in the oppressed category for yeah. obvious reasons, right? Just look at the 20th century, or look at before the 20th century, even. Yeah. But now they're in the oppressor category. They've joined white men and straight people <laughs> in the oppressor category. So now they get to be hated on. And, you know, you can never do anything evil enough against them because oppressors have no rights and the oppressed are, are able to get away with literal murder and the left will come out there and hold rallies in support yeah, of them. It's, it's so, just decolonization. That's, yeah, you know, and, yeah. And, and so, like, honestly, the biggest gaping hole that we have on the right right now is we do not have a suitable substitute to the university system. Sure, well, you can point and to Hillsdale and, and Liberty, but go ahead, Hamilton. To, to that point... We have to look at what Jordan Peterson and Michaela Peterson are doing with Peterson Academy. Mm-hmm. I wish I had more information on it right now, but they are trying to do build an accredited system that costs, I believe, 10% of what an actual university would do. Now, we haven't seen that in fully in action yet. I've been tuned into their newsletter to try and stay up to date on what they're doing. But I think we'll have a lot more information on what they're doing here soon, and that could be a viable option. Well, I think here's here's the here's the thing that people need to understand is that one of the things one of the tricks that that government does along with licensing and um, higher ed is they'll talk about like oh well if you the people that go to college and get a degree have much higher earning potentials on average even with all the stuff you don't like they still have higher earnings potentials well yeah because higher ed colludes with government in order to make higher ed you know a, a mandatory in order to break into certain fields. So, I mean, I, like I've always thought that was, I don't think people, I don't think people look at that way. They're like, oh, well, yeah, if I want to go be a doctor, I have to do this. Or if I want to do this, I have to, yeah, exactly. The government requires that you go to higher ed an approved institution an approved school in order to get these approved credentials in order to be able to even engage in it. And keep in mind, the whole argument for that is, well, you really want just random people out there performing medicine. Well, okay. Again, a special forces 18 Delta can, can go overseas and perform all sorts of, of medical procedures. Um, but the moment they come back here to the United States, if they do stitches for money, they're a criminal, right? Like they're violating the law. Uh, they're practicing without a license. And so I think it's important for people to understand that what, what I want to move toward is this idea of competency within your, your field and incompetency within your field can theoretically be attained a, a lot of different ways right it, why can't it be it, for for <laughs> for literally centuries of human history competency within a field was attained not by going to some grandiose university it was a crane through apprenticeship 
it, it was it was attained by doing it for a long period of time. Now, again, I'm not advocating we go back to the guild system. I'm just simply saying that we, we need to open our minds up to this idea that higher ed has, has in many respects become a racket because of all the additional things they require you to do and to pay for that have nothing to do with the competence necessary to perform a specific economic task. And, and that's where, again, it, it's, it's all fine and good for higher ed to say, oh, well, yes, if you get a degree, X, Y, and Z. Yeah, not because the degree from your institution was necessarily required to become competent in this, but because you colluded with the government to set up criteria where legally I'm not permitted to do it any other way. Right, that's a huge problem, and so I would love to see. And I, and I think as things become a little bit more difficult economically, and as people start to to really get savvy to the fact that both, in, you know, certain people within the marketplace as well as higher education have colluded with the government to keep out viable economic competitors. And, and what I want to see more of is institutions which are dedicated not toward this idea of, well, I guess we've got to provide our own um, you know, way to seek all the same accreditation and all the same government approval in order to provide this. I, I would love to see more core competence toward a particular skill set because, again, that's where you get into like – again, that's where you can get into a conversation about the gray market or the black market or things like that. But honestly, when things get bad enough – you, you stop asking the same questions with respect. And, and again, someone's going to clip this and say, oh, Nick Freitas thinks you should go and get open heart surgery on the black market. <laughs> no, what, what I think is, is that I think that there is something inherently corrupting about a system which constantly runs to the government to decide what is necessary in order to be able to provide goods and services. Um, and, and I am skeptical of what we call regulatory capture, what we call anti-competitive practices. I think it's so fascinating. The government loves to pat itself on the back like, oh, well, you know, we have rules against monopolization. Like you provide the very conditions to prevent competition from taking place in the first place. You provide the very, the very bureaucratic, the bureaucratic red tape, which makes it so difficult for someone to break into an industry and compete with established players. Right, the, the government is the biggest supplier of monopolies as opposed to to people preventing it. So, um, again, I, I think when it comes to when it comes to education, what I want to see is is more people that are kind of bucking the system, providing, like you said, access for the you know the K twelve component, or just you know that that earlier education, but then also the higher ed. And I don't like the again. I don't even want to call it credentialing. I, I want to call it. I, I want to see an emphasis in comp and competency associated with the various industries that people want to be able to provide products and services in. And I'd love to see alternatives from, you know, just, you know, kind of bowing at the altar of government on, on who can provide what. Um, let, let me do this. This is one other category for the players before we move into kind of the conditions. Um, and this is one I'm going to kind of lump this in, you know, this kind of includes your arts and entertainment, maybe media to some degree, you know, other, other influencers. Um, this is one area where I think we actually have been amazingly competitive and I'm going to go with kind of, um, when, when I look at influencers, I'm going to talk about people that again, provide, um, again, some sort when, when these people speak, other people listen, whether you like it or not. Other people listen. And then I, and I want to kind of break this down into people that I think are, are firmly within a category that I would automatically associate with being, you know, you know, allied on some level, right? Maybe not, probably not 100% across the board, but allied on some level. Um, those who seem in, in full opposition and then those for which there is this kind of gray area. And, and that's going to be a contra. I'm telling you right now, the gray area I'm going to talk about is, is going to be controversial uh, with some of our listeners, but 
All I'm asking is you hear me out. So on, on the people that I think are are in a position of influence, um, obviously, you know, when you look at like the Daily Wire, um, when you look at Jordan Peterson, who is obviously a, a part of that, when you look at people like, you know, Charlie Kirk, the, these are all people within the conservative movement that have a fair degree of, of influence and are considered to be thought leaders within conservative thinking or right wing thinking. I think um, you also have to include uh, people like Elon Musk in there, who, who, again, would not identify himself as a conservative, but is increasingly associated with uh, the right when it comes to like basic things like freedom of speech. Um, I, I think that you know th- those are, and, and we're we're starting to see more people too in comedy. Um, Adam Carolla, Jim, you know, Jim Brewer to a lesser extent, I think on that, but, but people that are kind of pushing, even guys like Jeff Dye, who again would not, I don't think would classify himself as a conservative necessarily, but just the fact that he believes that, you know, comedians play an important role and should be, you know, afforded freedom of speech and that this, you know, woke stuff is nonsense. Um, they're starting to kind of fall into this category where they're associated with influence. Um, Joe Rogan's another person who, again, I, would never categorize himself as a conservative, but has a is a general disdain for the the woke nonsense that is coming through. Um, you know, Sean Ryan, some other guy. These 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 are the people that I would kind of put either um, in you know either firmly in the conservative camp or maybe conservative adjacent, which is to say that the left moves so far to the left that these guys now get included with us, even if they're not necessarily comfortable with that uh, position. When it comes to the people in opposition, I think that's obvious. Most of Hollywood, um, most of most of the influencers that you see within, um, you know, the arts and entertainment. Taylor Swift is kind of a perfect example of this with her with her Swifties. And and again, it's it's interesting. You'll see a lot of you know conservatives kind of mock that or pass it off. I'm telling you right now, when Taylor Swift tells all of her fans to go out and register to vote, and this is super important, and you need to start, you know, Uncle Joe that's going to have an impact on the box office. You don't got to like it. You can think it's dumb, but if it has an impact, well, then you better stop ignoring it. You mean the ballot box? Well, also and the box office, but for oh, sorry. Different yeah. Reasons. Yeah. The ballot box. Yeah. Um, no, you're right. You're yeah. right. I mean that th- th- this is okay. So if the pro, you know, what's interesting is, is that we haven't necessarily, we have, we've only just begun to fight the battle within academia. Yeah. In the sense that we are finally beginning to punch back. This is why I brought up DeSantis earlier, because he did punch back against the yeah. university system in Florida. And we need more Republicans doing that. They, we, we should not be blindly throwing money at institutions that are literally churning out people who hold ideologically, diametrically opposed views to us. We mm-hmm. are funding our opposition. And that is the reason we lose, because Democrats reward the left, rewards their allies and punishes their enemies. We yeah. punish our allies and reward our enemies. And yeah. then we wonder why we lose. So we've just started to fight that. But I have to say on the entertainment and the media side, and yes, there is a bit of a separation there. But if you want to just lump it all together, entertainment and media, right, Hollywood and Every single one of the major news networks, all of print media, all of the newspapers, yeah. radio, you know, YouTube, uh, especially through Google's control over it. And we know that they're not always on our side. Right. You know, it's the people on the right get lambasted on these platforms far more than people on the left do. And until recently, Twitter as well. Right. So if you just lump all of that together. You know, they, we're, we're talking like quintessential cathedral here. Right. You yeah. Know, th- this is the second pillar of it alongside academia. We've been fighting that fight for a much longer time, and I think that we're starting to get some tangible results in the sense that conservatives walked away from Hollywood 
three to five years ago. Yeah. I, I, I used to be, and, and we've talked about this before. I used to be a huge Star Wars fan until, mm-hmm. the, until the sequels came out. Yeah. I haven't I haven't consumed a single piece of Star Wars media since episode 9 came out in December 2019 and I hated it. I also yeah. hated the previous two episodes before because they were hot garbage and they destroyed my favorite fictional characters that I grew up with as a kid. They killed off Luke Skywalker's character, they literally killed off Han Solo. They destroyed them and they didn't replace them with compelling characters. They replaced them with DEI candidates yeah. that had <laughs> you know, that were two dimensional characters that had nothing to do with them. And they, yeah, the, Mar- the Mary Sue's. Yeah. They, they, you know, Ray was a Mary Sue. Finn was just literally a DEI candidate. I was disappointed. They didn't do anything with him. Like, like, like they, they replaced it with garbage. And quite frankly, the left cannot produce beautiful works of art. That's just within, within cinema. Think about architecture. Postmodern architecture is a disaster. Everything's ugly. Now that the left yeah. builds, think about other forms of art. Like, we've lost complete control over the arts. We've also lost complete control over entertainment. We've lost complete control over the media and people have responded accordingly. People no longer watch things like the Oscars. People no longer watch movies increasingly. In fact, people will go to places like nerd Roddick or critical drinker and watch them mock those movies. I was just, I was just going to say that like I get more enjoyment. Like I I have tried to, there, there are certain movies that I've tried to watch that I just can't get through. And and now because I know a whole lot more about the way, especially streaming services, now I know uh, a whole lot more about how they, you know, look at when people drop off or when people, you know, stop watching something. Now I get to the point where as soon as a, as soon as a channel, or as soon as a movie goes off into a direction that I just think like, Oh, here we go. Here comes the message, right? <laughs> like I stop it right there because I want the people analyzing it to know, yeah, that's where I stopped. I'm done with your crap. And, and to your point, I love watching nerd Roddick, right? And critical drinker. Again, I always say critical drinkers language is a, is a little bit rough, not really family friendly. Uh, nerd Roddick is a, a little bit more family friendly, but I, I like watching. I enjoy watching both of their commentary. Um, and, and some people look at that like, Oh, you just like that. They're sitting there and they're, they're trashing the woke. No, if you actually, again, I know a little something now, or I know a lot more now than I used to about what makes for good entertainment and, and how do you tell a compelling story and listening to neurotic and critical drinker and some others out there, um, you know, discuss these things is interesting to me because of the way they structure it and because they do it in such a way to where, again, they're, they're concerned about their audience and they're not trying to insult or offend their audience. They're just trying to provide, you know, no nonsense analysis, which they know we're going to rigorously look at and say whether or not we like it. And I, and I think, again, I think both of them have done a a good job. I, I, it is amazing to me if you would have told me 10 years ago that insofar as I'm going to quote, watch TV. And by that, I just mean something on a screen. Yes, I, that the vast majority of what I watch would be on YouTube <laughs> and it would be it, it would either be a combination of history channels or homesteading stuff or how to you know properly plant tomatoes or whatever, or, or even the comedy stuff that I find on there. If you would have told me that I would watch that more than I would, you know, like a, a Netflix streaming show, I would have said, no, that's that's no, that's dumb. That's that's not going to be a thing. It's absolutely a thing. And, and it's because I, I have. There's a far higher degree of probability that I'm going to be able to find somebody who at the very least is going to create something informative or entertaining without deliberately going out of their way to try to shove a particular message down my throat that I don't want. Um, and, and they're not going to kill off. You know, again, I, I think that's Star Wars is probably the best example of this, either Star Wars or the Rings of Power. 
Those are probably the two greatest examples right now with maybe a close second being what they did with like, um, you know, DC comics or the MCU or, or whatever. Um, they, they took something that had a, a built in fan base that, that people loved these stories and they, and they loved and they respected the author and the work that they had gone through in order to build it out. And they respected both the male and the female characters. They respected the, the overall storyline. And then we sat there as they, as, as woke Hollywood came in and systematically critical drinker did the best analysis of this. It wasn't good of, enough for them to say, you don't get your old characters. Here's the new characters you're required to love. And they didn't give them a story arc, right? They didn't give them any sort of, of compelling challenges to have to overcome and learn something and grow to where you could kind of grow with that character and, and actually kind of see that struggle. And, and, and no, 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 they just showed up on the scene and they were perfect at everything. And if you didn't love them, you're a sexist or a racist or a bigot or, a, or whatever it was. It wasn't good enough for them to do that. They had to go back and systematically destroy all of our other characters, yes. right? Han Solo is no longer the guy that that you know was kind of a bit of a rogue and a little bit selfish, but but found out through you know time and space that he really cared about these people and was willing to risk everything for a cause that originally wasn't his, right? Luke, Luke Skywalker, yeah, Luke Skywalker was kind of the um, and, and yeah, he dies what as a failed father, a failed husband, and he's right back to where he was at the very beginning of his story. Luke Skywalker went from kind of the impetuous young person that was eager to go out there and do it, and, and always thought that he kind of knew what the right thing to do and wanted to do it, but needed to grow up, right? And then we find him at the end, and he's just this broken old man that doesn't care about anything anymore and is just going to hide from the world. It's like, again, it wasn't good enough. To try to replace them, they had to destroy them. And, and they replaced them with characters that, like, I wanted Ray to lose a duel. She never does. Yeah. She, she never does in, in the sequel. She, she, from day one, she's a Mary Sue and beats a Sith Lord despite having never wielded a lightsaber in her life. Like, give me a break. And, and, and here's the thing. People might be like, oh, you know, why are you ranting about how woke Hollywood is about yeah. this one movie? Like, the point is, I'm, I'm singling on one example here. Because I don't have the time to talk about the entire forest, so yeah. I am fixated on the trees right now as an example. Because it wasn't just Star Wars. It was virtually every single thing that came out of Hollywood in the last 10 years, especially in the last five years, has sucked. Yeah. Almost everything. And this is why, like... We actually did a Y minute on this like over a year ago. Like the number of box office bombs is at virtually an all time high. And the number of, of, of people that are actually going in and sitting down in the theaters and watching it has plummeted and it hasn't recovered from COVID. We can say, oh, well, COVID obviously drove them away. Sure. It's been three years since them, four years yep. since them. There should have been a recovery and there hasn't been a full recovery. And the reason why is because the content that they're putting out is garbage. And yeah. guess what? The right is reacting accordingly. And you know what? That's a really good thing to, to, yeah. to quote the left. Oh, it's a, you know, <laughs> You know, all your favorite characters from your childhood are being destroyed, and that's a good thing. Well, yeah. I got news for you, Hollywood. You're running out of audience members that you can push your garbage to, and that's a good thing. <laughs> and the reason why it's a good thing is because the right has realized, you know what? We don't need to patron these institutions that hate us and broadcast in their products about how much they hate us. Yeah. We don't have to, to, to visit them. In fact, we can make our own content. This is why I think it's fantastic that the daily wire is starting to put out their own stuff. It's in early days and, yeah. and you know, some of their stuff is, is better than others. 
others. But the fact that there's even an attempt on the right to, yeah. to come up with alternatives to Hollywood. This is why YouTube is so fantastic. And I'm I'm terrified that Google with their own DEI apparatus, because Google Google is not our friend, right? Mm-hmm. That this is why I'm terrified that one day that they might do the same thing that you saw within, you know, the banking sector or within the media or within academia and turn into gatekeepers and try to expel conservatives from their platform. And I hope that that doesn't happen. And and luckily we have some other platforms that are emerging in the event that that does happen one day. But this is why people have turned to YouTube. Like my parents have stopped watching TV. They've stopped watching most movies. They, they watch YouTube now. And I do the same thing. If I want to get my entertainment, I, I don't even have a TV. I can't tell you the last time I watched TV. I also can't tell you the last time I watched a movie. It might've been the last star Wars movie. Like I, 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 (laughs) I watch YouTube now and there's plenty of content creators on YouTube that, you know, they might not agree with everything I believe, but they're not diametrically opposed to me and hate me. Yeah. For, they're not for, going out of their way to, they're not going out of their way to insult. And, yeah. and th- this is kind of a good segue into the, so we've kind of talked about the players. Oh, Nick, and, the, the last point yeah. has got to be Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter. Oh, yeah. I haven't had a chance yeah. to bring that up, and I, I hinted at it earlier in this podcast that that it, it it might need to be brought up when we bring up the media. But before we move into you know like the conditions and the actions and stuff like that, there's something to be said about Elon's purchase of Twitter. I think there was a lot of people that thought this was a waste of money when this happened, and you could certainly argue it was considering the price tag. But I think looking back now, it's been over a year. It's been like what a year and a half or something like that since he purchased Twitter. That has been an absolute game changer. If you go on Twitter, there's discussions on Twitter that would never have been had under the old regime that that ruled that platform. In fact, if if you support alternatives to the left-wing leviathan that has emerged within these institutions, including the media... I encourage you to go yeah. on Twitter and like get the blue check mark and give Elon your eight bucks a month because if anything else, supporting the the financial independence of this platform so that way it can continue to be this hub of free speech where people on the right can actually coalesce without being being cowed into silence and conformity needs to happen because yeah. again, there's discussions are being had and Elon in many ways is 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 pushing them. There's discussions that are being had on Twitter that never would have been allowed when the old regime was in charge of it. And this is finally a platform where the the reason the left hates this so much is because there's now one platform out of the bazillion out there that they do not have complete ideological capture over. And they can't stand that. I think that's important, too, because Twitter has become kind of the primary place that people get their news in, in many respects. And again, I, I always think it's fascinating that the left cannot abide competition like they they just cannot abide it whenever they get themselves into like a um, um like, again it's not that it's not that harvard was always you know this bastion of a far left wing group think um but the the moment the left started to gain a, a foothold in the institution the moment they started to take over the hr departments that's certainly what they fostered like they don't want they, they may want the appearance of of some sort of diversity of thought among their staff or faculty, but it, it really doesn't exist in any sort of genuine form, right? They they all have varying degrees of the left. Like for them, the the for them the Overton uh, window is on one side you have Hillary Clinton and on the other side you have Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, right? There, there's your entire realm of acceptable thought and opinion at Harvard. 
And, and, and again, I think there's a reason why they do this. And, and James Lindsay really does probably the best job of anyone that I've seen kind of succinctly, you know, effectively and concisely explaining it. But what I want to do is we kind of move into this whole idea of what are the conditions right now is I want to talk. Um, we, we have two, two more categories and the kind of fourth one I want to get to if, if, you know, we have time because I think it's important. And that is like the, the conditions, but also the necessary actions. So I want to kind of merge these two a little bit as we go through these. So the first is when I, and, and we've already kind of been talking about it on the arts and entertainment side and on the, on the media side in general, you know, the, the, the players we've already discussed, the conditions, again, this was an area where I think most people thought it was just lost, right? Like it was what it was. We were never going to, we were never going to, uh, you know, retake Hollywood. We are never going to really t- retake uh, the mainstream media, you know, we are never going to, you know, retake any of these institutions. And I think what we found is that interestingly enough, you know, again, YouTube is owned by the left, right? <laughs> like effectively owned by the left, but conservatives, uh, libertarians, et cetera, have been able to use it to enormous effect because it has provided more of an open platform. I'm not saying it's perfect, um, but it, it does provide a platform where people can come in and express other ideas and to do so in an entertaining and informative way, which has been incredibly effective in combating against what, what used to be the only place that you got your entertainment. And that was Hollywood, right? Hollywood determined that. And then there was some competition within streaming services and those were almost immediately captured by the left, but they've had a much harder time capturing the sort of entertainment that's, that's made possible by platforms like YouTube and others. I mean, obviously we're on rumble as well. Um, and, and the, and I do think that there are more platforms on the right that are getting better at that space. I mean, what, I mean, rumble knows this, right? It's rumble knows that it's been, a, it's, it's been harder to utilize their platform than it is YouTube. And so they've tried to make necessary changes in order to bring that up. I think Twitter is another environment where you might actually get to see more of an opportunity. They've started to kind of do do more of this where you you can provide more long form content over on on Twitter now as well. And so it'll be it'll be fascinating to see how that develops. And some of it came from competition within those platforms, right? Elon Musk bought Twitter. Um and then some of it has also come with competing on existing platforms like YouTube, like Facebook, um, like Instagram. But then the the other side has been setting like this is one where we not only competed for, but we've actually either taken over or set up alternative platforms. And I think when I look at the conditions within arts and entertainment, obviously we're way behind. But that's one area where I actually see a pathway forward. Like that, I see. I, I can actually see a pretty clear line on on how we achieve success, and part of the success we're achieving right now, let's face it, is is brought on by the fact that woke progressives are horrible at this. Like the only thing they've been able to produce, it's not even really original content. If you look at everything that Disney is doing, Disney's not doing anything new. They're, they're, everything new they've done has not gotten any traction whatsoever. All they've managed to do is screw up with some what what brighter minds than them have been able to produce before they got there. And, and some of them were, were liberal minds, but they were liberal minds in more of a classical sense that they still believed in in you know basic concepts of of humanity and morality and, and things of that nature. They told stories that that a wide group of people could get behind regardless of of their background or their economic status. So they were unifying with respect to their content and their messaging. And and woke Hollywood hasn't been able to do that. And it, it's giving us this window where we have the ability to start to go in and, and compete in these areas. And, and to your point, Christian, I'm, 
you know, again, like you said, not everything Daily Wire has put out has been, you know, wonderful, but they're competing in that space and I'll continue to support them as they do because I do believe they're going to continue to get better. And I believe that there's going to be more talent opened up to us as a result. There's going to be more creativity. And as, as long as we have platforms where we can continue to produce it, I think we're going to continue to gain and become more influential in that space. So I, I would say that the, the conditions are again, still not in our favor. They, they provide, they, they control all of the major studios. Um, they have the budgets, but increasingly what has happened is they've, They've not used it wisely. They're destroying the credit that they've had. You're starting to see actually, you know, foreign markets that don't spread the same woke nonsense. There's a reason, part of the reason why anime does so well in the United States is, and I used to hate that stuff, right? But if you look at the storylines there, the, the themes are far more recognizable um, for what American, you know, you know, entertainment used to represent. I'm so glad you brought that up because I get to shill for anime and give a shout out to <laughs> to my friend Tyler. Not our Tyler that that works in Ben Klein's office, but the yeah. other Tyler of ours in Southwest Virginia. He's a huge anime fan. He and I are um, actually in a Discord server together. That's a bunch of anime fans that are also Christians too, which is kind of interesting. And yeah. one of the arguments that he actually gave, because I asked him once, I'm like, how do you how do you put those two things together? And he was like, well, it's simple. Because like when you look at at anime, when when you when you look at the content that comes out of Japan, it's one of two things. It's either incredibly raunchy or it's actually really really good content that that has the sort of values and characteristics that that make for good storytelling yeah. in a way that you just don't see coming out of Hollywood right now. And so I think part of the reason that you're seeing like a huge uptick in in that in interest in that genre in the West, in particular in the United States, is because at the end of the day, Japan has not gone woke. No. And and so the content that they create is has many of the same themes and and symbolisms and and metaphors and tropes that used to make Hollywood the entertainment capital of the world. Yeah. Many yeah. of the many of those same principles of storytelling still exist in in Japanese storytelling, and so once that gets disseminated to the West, the same people that have walked away from Hollywood are now are now turning their eyes towards towards Japan to oh, get their I, entertainment. And and I I'll tell you what, like some of the period pieces that uh, Korea has put out have been great. Like the Admiral, that was a that was a fantastic movie. Um, the Kingdom was like kind of a really really cool like period piece zombie movie, and like. Um, you know, Joseon Korea, which was, it was a, again, a really cool, compelling story. Um, another one that was kind of, was just funny to watch is, is, uh, what they call it, not Bollywood, but Tollywood. Um, and that was RRR. And I remember, I remember we're sitting down to watch this. I'm like, what, what the heck is this? And, and look, it's, it's very, it's, it's, you know, it's India filmmaking. So a lot of it's over the top. It completely defies physics, like the whole deal. And there was certain themes in there where I was like, okay, this, I get the whole anti-colonial component, but they really make the British empire just look like in, insanely bad, which is not something that I necessarily, again, not to say that the British empire was, was, was perfect or whatnot, but I, I, I do think there's been a sentiment there that's like, okay, this is a little over the top. But having said that, if you look at the themes and and the, the, it was an incredibly compelling story. And yeah, the action was totally over the top. I mean, dudes are throwing leopards at one another, right? But it's, but it was entertaining. It was, it was easy to watch. You could actually get on board and, and understand where the characters were coming from. And there was genuine, you know, uh, character development and, and betrayal and all those things that you, you used to expect out of good storytelling. Um, so I, I think it's interesting. I, I think the action that is needed is, is bottom line is, 
just like we need more people in other sectors of the economy to kind of break away from the mold of what we've always considered, you know, this is your path, right? I, I go to school and then I do well in all my standardized tests and then I go to college and then I get this degree and then I do this. I want to see more of an entrepreneurial spirit, not just within the economy as a whole. I want to see it within arts and entertainment. I, I want to see I want to see people utilize technology and the platforms that they have in order to create new content and new concepts of going to th- that harken back to that that model of storytelling that that works and that is inspirational. And so that, that's the action I want to see. I, I want to see people on the right start to like cancel more of your subscriptions. I'm not one of those guys that says cancel everything, cancel more of your subscriptions and start giving, you know, some of these other platforms a a chance, start giving some of these other creators a chance. And you might be really, really surprised at, at again, whether it's the comedic side or whether it's more the drama side, you might be really, really shocked at at how entertaining it really is. Even if it's got a little bit of ways to go on some of the other things with respect to development. You know, this is something that Hamilton is, I know, really passionate about. He and I have had some some really cool conversations off off camera about, you know, like, what do we want to achieve in life? Because we're still in our late 20s, although I'll be turning 30 later this year. And, you know, he, he really wants to help, you know, push content creation from a conservative perspective mm-hmm. because there's just not enough conservative content creators. There's a lot of grifters. But there's yeah. not a, there's not enough like genuine conservative content creators that make good products rather than slap an American label on you know the whole buy buy freedom water right yeah um, yeah so like I think there's something to be said about I, I, I personally I think that the conditions are actually ripe for a right wing cultural renaissance totally I, agree. I I really think that that we are on the verge of an explosion of content creators on the right. I mean, look at Rudyard. Look yeah. at what if alt hiss. That's a form yeah. of entertainment. And and yeah. he's also educating at the same time. So in some ways, you're actually kind of attacking both of those fronts, the media and academia, through his format. I know that we in fact I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna leak it because it's gonna happen at some point. Warren <laughs> talks to create another YouTube channel that I'm going to play a much bigger role in and our, our video creator Cody will be playing a much bigger role in. And the focus of that is also going to be entertainment. And it's going to also be through an educational standpoint, because we're probably going to be talking a lot about history, right? You introduced me in all these podcasts as the resident historian. Like I loved history before I even got into politics. I got into politics because of my love of history. I became friends with you, not because of our shared political values, but because of our shared love of history. Mm -hmm. And then I became a conservative because I was so interested in history. And and I want to be a content creator in the history realm because there's a lot of people that will put out videos about how FDR saved us. Right. Oh my gosh. Like, like, and so like there needs to be some pushback against that, but not explicit where it's like I'm leading from the perspective of I'm a conservative. No, instead the content needs to be good. And it also needs to be carrying good messages that are true rather than simply, again, the grifter perspective where it's like you're riding the elephant into the room. I don't, I'm going to leave the elephant at home. I just want to make good content, but I also don't want to be lying to people about history, lying to people about economics. And that's exactly what people on the left are doing. They've twisted, they have to, they've twisted history. They've twisted economic reality in some of the content that they've created. And so again, I'm going to reiterate, I think the conditions are ripe 
for a right-wing cultural renaissance. I think we're on the cusp of it. And yeah. people like Rudyard are the very beginning of it, but they're not the end of it. And I think Rudyard's going to be doing this for a long time and he might do more stuff. But like, I think there's going to be more people like that that are going to emerge in the future. And, and, yeah. and in some respects, what we're doing right now is an example of this, right? The, this podcast is an example of an alternative to left-wing media. And so well, I'll leave I, it at you know, that. And I'd no, love I, Hamilton's I think that's, take too. I think that's absolutely true. And, and it kind of, and it kind of works a, a segue into um, the next condition and that's the condition of education. Well, hang and, on one second, Nick. I, I think Hamilton wanted to. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Hamilton. To, <laughs> I, <see you. laughs> I really wanted Hamilton's take on this because he's really into the whole content creation. Yeah, field. go for it. Well, I think we've made the mistake along the way of allowing YouTube, the whole big tech, to convince us that it's impossible for conservatives to perform online, gain a voice, build a following, and also build something that helps you make a living at the same time. Uh, but I don't think that's the case anymore. I think we've even seen YouTube back up some of their anti-conservative policies related to J6 in the last couple of weeks, actually. Uh, but talking about Rudyard, Shameless plug, if you haven't already listened to the episode that we published with Rudyard last week, it was a great episode. Go watch it. Um, but I think, you know, for years, Hollywood was very, very good at the art of subtlety. And that was laying the foundation, laying the groundwork for liberal ideas, left-wing ideas to take hold in a major way through the school system and everything. Imagine if your kid's going to school, hearing their teacher uh, subtly pushing a leftist ideology, then they go home and watch a cartoon or a movie that does the same exact thing. At some point, they're going to think that that is a natural idea yeah. for them to hold, and it's just not true. And I think I'm really excited for what Christian and Cody and I are doing with this YouTube channel. Uh, Christian kind of dropped that a little bit sooner than we were planning <laughs> to. Um, but I mean, it really is the the time for for people who have conservative ideas and principles to find things that they are interested in, whether or not that be history or homesteading or the arts or something that other people are interested to. We don't have to just connect over our political principles. We can connect through our interest as well. And so I think it, it is imperative that conservatives and people that are liberty-minded see this time an opportunity to walk outside the confines of conservative content, find things that they're interested in, meet other people online with those same interests, and serve those people with good content that's entertaining, that, that isn't doomsday content. You know, Christian is our resident uh, doomer, <laughs> but he's not always going to be. So, yeah, that's what I'd say about it. Well, and, and I think it's interesting. If you look at like, I remember growing up watching John Wayne, loved watching John Wayne. If you watch John Wayne right now, you would, you'd, you'd, I mean, you'd probably think it was a right wing propaganda piece, but it, it was just, it, it was just the exemplar of kind of, you know, various themes of honesty and loyalty and, and working hard and facing down danger despite the odds and, and all of those things, which are, which are all things that culturally on the right, we genuinely appreciate and and I and I do think that that's something where again it's that subtlety like don't don't make your don't make the title of your movie or your show I mean unless you know that's the purpose of it but when we're talking about entertainment as Christian said and I, I've said this before don't write the elephant into the room right like oh here I am as the Republican alternative or here I am as the conservative alternative how about this how about you just tell a good story with good themes Be, because that's what resonates with people. Right. Ultimately, when you look at the cultural conditions within our country right now, there there is the, the cultural conditions that we tend to you know hold up and elevate as 
the the bedrock of our country is not so much rooted or maybe it's increasingly become and maybe that's part of the problem i so much of it has become rooted in this idea that the that america is our politics and and that's not the case that that was never supposed to be the case it was never supposed to be thinking of america in in terms of politics what attracted people to the united states and the reason why they came here was not because they were going to get to vote what what they loved was the idea that this was a place that they could raise their family that they could have their farm that they could start their business that they could they could do all of these things and the government wasn't going to constantly impose itself on them right that that was the dream and and i think when we look at those cultural themes that we really lift up it's the idea of the strong father it's the idea of the nurturing mother it's the idea of of you know going through this process in life together and raising kids and you know, whatever it is, whatever that struggle is, whether it's kind of a you know, little house on the prairie or, or that, that's important. And I think when we, I think we're, we're at a point right now where for the last several decades, um, young men and young women have been convinced that that's, that's not the, the core um, theme within American culture anymore. The core theme of American culture, if you're a guy, if anything, if you're a guy, it's probably that you're bad and you're the, you're the cause of the world's problems. You need to just sit down and shut up because it's not for you, right? If, it's, if you're a woman, it's all about being a girl boss, right? Like that's, that's the theme. And, and motherhood is almost seen as something that holds you back from achieving the highest ranking of your girl bossery. And that's why you have to have abortion on demand. And that's why, you know, these, these mean patriarchal males, you know, don't want you to have a, abortion rights all the way up to the point of birth because they, they want to keep you down. And, you know, so we, we've been fed this cultural narrative that the, that the sexes are actually in opposition to one another and that, you know, when it, when it comes to those, you know, that, that concept of the traditional family, that's oppressive and that's patriarchal. And look, this is straight out of Marx. Marx believed all those things. Um, and then you look at the whole component of sexual identity and that being something where that, that's now paramount. That's the core component of your very existence is your sexual identity. It, it's not, it's not believing and living in something bigger than yourself, right? You are the top of Meyer, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's you. That's it. You and your goals and your ambitions and your truth and your identity. Okay. Well, what are we off? What do we offer in opposition to that? Well, no, it's you are like our, our thing is you're beautifully and wonderfully created in the image of God. And that's a wonderful thing, but you also have obligations. You also have relationships. You all, there's such a thing as called honor and integrity and honesty and, and fighting for the things that are, are important and building up a family and building up a legacy within that family. And, and I would say that when, when it comes to the larger, you know, the current cultural conditions versus the ones that we want to see, I think people are starving for it. And, and I think that just how we were talking about, if you can, if you can actually put those themes into entertainment, not because you said, here's conservative dad or conservative mom or conservative kids, but just the idea of a, a father fulfilling their role as protector and provider, a mother fulfilling their role is kind of like that, that nurturer and in many cases, kind of that moral compass for the children, the, the kids with this idea of, of going through life and struggling through certain things, but having a respect for their parents and, and going through things together and growing and learning and not always making the right decisions, but coming back together, right? All of those things are, I think are things that people are going to be, are, are currently starved for are going to become even more starved for as, as the current cultural norm just fails them. And I, I think we have this, this ability to be able to really embrace that and provide a, a model for it. It's, it's one of the, I've said this before, 
One of my favorite things to attend is the Homesteaders of America conference. Not because I'm like the best homesteader out there. I am not, not even by far. Like I am, I am such a novice at, at all of it. But what I was telling, uh, you know, Christian, uh, when I came back from this last conference was like, man, I just felt so encouraged. And, and I didn't feel encouraged, you know, simply because someone had a, a, a better method for, you know, raising pork or, or, you know, or, uh, you know, planting tomatoes, although all that was there, I felt so encouraged because I was around so many people that even though we had different backgrounds, even though there, there was people there with different objectives or different life experience, I was around a bunch of people that I could feel wanted me to succeed and I wanted them to succeed. Not, not because all of our vision of the future was going to look exactly alike, but because there were these common themes and common respect for, for the different roles that we were all trying to play. And the idea was is that none of us were there to try to figure out a way to compel everyone else to do what we wanted. Nobody was there to try to, to try to impose a particular way of doing something. It was more of like-minded people coming together and saying, yeah, we're, we're all trying to figure things out. And some people were there and they, they had a thousand acres and some people were there and they were growing strawberries on their, on their, you know, apartment balcony. But everybody was just adamant about, yeah, I want to be more resourceful. I want to be able to take care of my family. I don't want to be so dependent on, on institutions or organizations which seem determined to, to fight me at every step of the way or to influence my children in ways that I don't think is healthy for them. And, and that sort of cultural meetup, right, where we were sharing information and we were sharing knowledge and, and to some degree we were sharing you know, uh, entertainment and we were breaking bread with, with one another. Man, it was I, – I just felt rejuvenated after that weekend. And I, and I think culturally one of the things that needs to happen is – Instead of necessary, instead of saying, "Well, the way that we're going to change the the culture is we're going to elect the right people and we're going to pass the right laws." Um, no, I, I think what's going to happen is you're going to live your life in a in a way that produces the sort of results that everybody is looking for, but can't seem to find in all of the bill of goods they've been sold, and yes. that's going to have an enormous impact. I mean, I think it was Yuri Bezmenov who once said that you know, people who don't want to be subverted won't be. Yeah. And that, you know, that's ultimately the biggest defense against subversion. When he was giving some of his lectures in the 1980s, warning about, you know, the active measures and, and some of these tactics that the KGB were, were, you know, wielding against the United States in the open, but also secretly, um, you know, basically the, the Gramscian model, right? You know, construct a counter hegemony against the existing one that doesn't suit your purposes. And mm-hmm. and they succeeded. The irony, the irony of the Cold War is the Soviet Union disintegrated, but that plan succeeded. Yeah. And the, the beauty of all of this, though, is that there's a simple solution to it, which is don't allow yourself to, to get sucked into it. Don't allow yourself to be subverted. And, and I, I think that, that that cultural renaissance that we were just talking about is one of the best ways to do it. But, I mean, I, I know that you have two other areas in there. Like, like, I know that you wanted to talk about, like, finances and politics. And unfortunately, like, we always have to fight in the political realm even if we don't want to. It's yeah. an institution that you cannot walk away from. Like, like you, you cannot walk away from it. There is – remember when I gave that analogy that – you know, to, to use the Lord of the Rings analogy, the ring exists and there is no Mordor. There is yeah. no Mount Doom for you to throw it into. And yeah. that's, a, that's a really 
bad problem to have, right? Because we also know that the ring corrupts people. And and the ring in this case represents power. And yeah. so if you know that power corrupts people and you know that there is no there is no state of nature. There is no state of pure anarchy. You cannot throw the ring away. And so now you need to create as many safeguards as possible to defend against the ring corrupting those who wield it, and then they turn around and oppress you because you don't want to live in a tyrannical state. We don't want 1984. We don't want North Korea. And and so I, I think in the political realm, it's it's unfortunately it's something that you must always fight in. You cannot just retreat from. You can't simply no. say, I mean, sometimes history does allow you to do this, but usually you can't. You cannot simply say, we'll construct our own institutions. That That's a revolution, right? Yeah, that's, a, yeah. that's a civil war. You don't really get those every Tuesday, right? You get those once every couple centuries. But in these other institutions, yeah, you can walk away from Hollywood. You can walk away from mainstream academia. You can walk away from mainstream media. And you can construct your counter institutions to those, which I think that, that not only do – do we need to do those things? I think we're actually finally starting to do those things. But in the political yeah. realm, it's entirely different because short of a civil war or short of a revolution, you cannot walk away from the political institutions. You have to fight for the existing ones. Again, unless you're willing to go to that step, right? And yeah. so, and that doesn't yeah. happen all the time. That's again, that's once every couple centuries that you get a situation like that where it could happen. Now, we've done podcasts on well, could that actually happen again? And and I think the odds of that are greater than zero at this point. Usually they're close to zero, but I think that we're moving in a in a somewhat dangerous direction where it is a non-zero percent chance that, yeah, maybe people do walk away from the existing political institutions. But until they yeah. get to that point, you have to keep fighting within the existing structures that exist within politics. Well, and I think that I think that's absolutely spot on. Um, spot on. I I. I there's not a whole lot to add to that, except that I would say that, you know, we're, we got two other areas we're going to talk about, and that's kind of the, the, the finance and the education piece. And what, what are the areas economically and, and educationally that, you know, what are the conditions and what are the actions that are, are needed? I think the conditions within politics is that, I mean, we, we, we have to admit the fact that both parties have been complicit in, in the mess that we're in right now. I think one of, one of those parties by design and, and the other party through, you know, whatever cowardice, convenience, comfort, whatever, whatever you want to call it. But I, I think that we, we are, I think the current conditions are, is that there's going to be, uh, there's going to be a, a major, major problems within the political realm that are probably so far advanced this point that it's going to affect the economics of things. And we'll talk about that in a moment, but to your point, you still have to compete for those areas. The question is, is how do you effectively compete in them? And, and I would offer, I think the action that is necessary is that one, you need to find people that genuinely believe in the things that we're talking about, right? It's not good enough for them to just check off boxes on a litmus test. By the same token, you also need people that you can trust to go down to a legislature, whether it be Congress, whether it be your state house, whether it be, you know, your, um, apart from a legislature, like a board of supervisors, school board, you also need to pick people that you can also trust to be able to maneuver in the moment because so many things happen. When I, we talked about this a little bit on, on kind of the laziness, uh, there, there's a tendency toward laziness in some conservative circles where they just simply demand that you be able to do well. we elected you. You're in there. Why, why isn't it done yet? Well, because I'm one vote out of a, 141, 
right? Like in the, in the Virginia legislature, if you're up in Congress, it's, it's, you know, over 500 votes that you actually need to get something done. And so it's like, stop with these phony expectations and actually look at the operational environment. You're going to have to send people that you can trust into that environment. And what that means is, is that they need to be able to convince you of a deep abiding philosophical commitment to whatever it is, but, but also the intellectual capacity to be able to operate in, in the environment that they find themselves. And, and unfortunately right now what we have a lot of times, and you've effectively referred to it as the surrender caucus or the suicide caucus, we, we have the surrender caucus, which just can't wait to, to fold on every issue. You have the suicide caucus that believes that there's only one tactic and that's called a full frontal assault. And both of those, both of those lead toward or exactly what, what the, you know, the woke want, right? They want either pushovers or, or people that have no sense of tactics or strategy. And you have one side of the conservative side that is essentially bought on to big government Republicanism that just wants to go along to get along as long as they're eaten last. And then you have some supporters. Now I'm not, I'm not talking about the politicians and now I'm talking about the supporters. And then you have other people that the, the only way that they know you're being honest is if, if you're, if you're engaging in full frontal assaults and getting butchered in the process. And the moment you say, Hey, can we attack? Can, can we, can we maybe attack on the flank? Well, that's just an indication that you're now one of these surrender people, right? You, you don't, you don't possess the proper courage because if you did, then, then that full frontal assault would be successful. And so I, I would say on, on the action that's needed within politics are two things from a, um, from a, uh, an elected official, um, component is we need people that actually understand that what is necessary is a, a significant reduction of government power and interfer- interference. And, and in order to get those sort of people, you need a, an electorate that is willing to say, yes, I understand that a lot of the these feel-good programs are, are just not sustainable and the second and third order effects of their existence are problematic. And it doesn't mean that we don't want to take care of elderly people. It doesn't mean we don't want to take care of, of children and make sure they're educated. But it's properly recognizing that, yeah, the government was not the proper mechanism to achieve these things. And so we're going to have to elect people that know that, that can effectively articulate it. And then you're going to have to properly back them up when they do it. But you're also going to have to understand that depending on what state they're in, right, or or depending on the operational environment that they're operating, you're not going to get everything that you want overnight. So that that's that's what I would say. Politicians who understand it can strategically think and can can operate in a difficult environment, but can do so where you you're you're you can trust that they will do the right thing. From the the voters' perspective, you need to find those people properly, vet them, but then also trust them in the environment that you're sending them. You know, trust but verify, right? You there there is a tendency to move in a particular direction that is is dangerous or the surrender caucus, right? But you know don't allow for that. But by the same token, don't automatically assume the worst of them, especially if they've demonstrated that they can be strong in difficult times. And then the other thing that I would say that it's incumbent upon us on the political side is don't become dependent upon the very government programs that you're asking them to essentially roll back. Because that's the other thing I've seen a lot of is, is people will get to a point where they say, well, yeah, I want all this other stuff gone, but not this one. I don't want this one gone. This one benefits my business or this one, you know, this one benefits me because I had to pay into this or this one is, well, no, I really need the the government to run education because I can't afford. Don't do that. Look for ways to become independent of those very government programs that keep you trapped and keep you electing the people that 
you know, aren't, aren't willing to actually do what needs to be done in order to get the government back to the size where it isn't so powerful and can't control every aspect of your life. Because the old Thomas Jefferson quote, I, I believe it was attributed to Jefferson, um, you know, holds, and that is a government big enough to give you everything you want is also big enough to take away everything you have. And if, if you're not willing to understand that that is the nature of, of power, um, then you're, you're constantly going to find politicians that think they can wield the ring, right? Well, oh, it, it wasn't that the power is corrupting. It's just we didn't have the right person to wield it yet. No, the very nature of it is corrupting. Don't allow the government to do things for which it is, it is not suited to do and, and will only corrupt um, to, to your eventual detriment. So, I, I mean, I, I think that's the conditions and the actions that are needed both from our elected officials and also us as voters. Um, and, and that leads me into that second point on the economic side. Um, look, I'm, I'm going to tell people right now, becoming by coming financially independent, I think is going to mean something different than what has meant in the past. In, in the past, financial independence kind of exclusively meant that you specialized in a particular area and therefore you, you had enough money to not have to worry about, you know, a nine to five or making your, your house payment or, or whatnot. I, I think that still exists. I, I think it's still going to exist to, to some degree. But when I look at the monetary policy of this country, when I look at um, the way that, you know, woke progressive politics, woke progressive financing is, is pushing us. I think part of the reason why people have searched for alternatives to, you know, the, the typical model, whether it was, you know, fiscal policy, monetary policy, I think the reason why they're looking for, for, kind of alternatives to that is because they've realized it's become problematic. It's because they've realized that with, with a couple of, you know, pushes of the printing press, you can wipe out someone's savings, you know, with, with a couple of, you know, you know, bad mismanagement, you, you can have companies that were valuated at billions of dollars all of a sudden overnight become completely bankrupt through bad monetary and fiscal policy. You can have government programs that you thought you could rely on for your retirement all of a sudden no longer be there or not be there at the degree that you thought they would be because of poor government mismanagement. You know, maybe thought you, you thought you were going to be able to go to maybe you're, you're fine financially, but all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the cupboards are bare at the store because of supply chain issues or, or because of the way that the government has mandated lockdowns or whatever else it might be. And so I would encourage people if those are the conditions Right. And I, and I do believe that economically the conditions are, are going to get worse from an inflation standpoint. You know, there may be some temporary reprieve, but I, I think, look, we, we have crossed so many lines with respect to the way the government spends money and the way the government gets money to spend that we have to acknowledge that there's going to be some pain and financial independence or just independence in general is not just going to be, I have more money in the bank or I have a good 401k because I think people are going to be surprised at how quickly that can go away. The real question is going to be, do you, in, do you exist in an economy where you have things of value, both from a property perspective and a skill set perspective? Um, and do you, do you exist in something of an intentional community? It may be family. It may be church. It may be you know you, a, a local intentional community. Do you have something to where if they shut it down, or they confiscate your bank accounts like they've done to people. Do you still have means to be able to feed your family? Do you still have means to be able to, you know, change and trade and exchange with other people when they arbitrarily took away your license, right? Or, or fired you because you didn't take a vaccine. Do you have skill sets that are still marketable 
in a very real sense, regardless of the arbitrary rules placed on our economy. And, and here's what I would tell you is that I don't say that to scare anybody. I say that because I think we've seen examples of where it's become a practical reality. But I also say it as something that in, in, in some way is kind of, this is going to sound weird, it's kind of exciting. Again, it's one of the reasons why I've really appreciated the, the homestead community. And it's not entirely because of raising your own food or growing your own food. It's because of some of the other people that I've gotten to meet and I've gotten to know, whether it be on, on the healthcare side, um, whether it be on, on other skill sets when it comes to carpentry or plumbing or uh, uh, electrical, people that have tangible skill sets that have value regardless of what the government tries to say or do. And I, and I think genuine independence or at least resilience is going to come not just from having a big bank account or a good 401k. I think it's going to come from developing necessary skill sets, not because you're going to completely wipe out the grocery store or anybody else because you can now grow and raise your own food. If you want to do that, you can. Great. I'm not advocating for that. I'm just saying that I've, I've actually got a great deal of, of contentment and um, excitement as well as entertainment and relaxation from the process of learning how to do various things that have value regardless of what happens in the economy. And I would, again, I say this as a, as a form of encouragement, right? Like there, God bless it that we still live in a place where we can develop these skill sets and develop these relationships, right? It's not just your skill sets. It's the relationships with other people that might have skill sets in other areas, which complement yours or cover down on the things that you can't. And so I think that's going to be, again, from a cultural perspective and from an economic perspective, I think it's going to afford us the ability to once again to be able to become closer with our families, closer with our friends, um, not just because of the bonds of family or the bonds of friendship, but also because it's going to provide us an opportunity to exchange and work with other people that we care about, that we know care about us, and to be able to engage in that kind of economic environment, which I, I think... It is not only potentially beneficial right now, but can come in really, really handy if all of a sudden you find yourself on, on the, the wrong end of, of the latest government shutdown or the latest government edict. I think that financially, you know, because I was talking about politics um, earlier, I, I don't think that we're quite there on the political front for, for you know, the, the conditions to be there for the emergence of, of – you know, this this renaissance on the right that that I think that we're looking for. I think we're very close. I think we're very close, but I don't think we're quite there yet. And the reason why is because I think the financial thing has to go first. Mm -hmm. Most political upheavals usually start over over economics, over finances, yeah. most revolutions, most civil wars, most most game changing, even 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 a step down from those two events, which are very extreme events in, in geopolitical history, even a step down from that. Think about, you know, political realignment elections, which are obviously not quite as severe as a civil war or a revolution, but are still major of uh, major historical events. Those also usually happen for economic reasons, right? Look at, look at FDR's election, unfortunately. Yeah. Likewise, Great you can depression. look at Reagan. Um, mm -hmm. Most, most, you know, Huge, earth-shattering events happen for economic reasons. The, the crisis of the Roman Republic started, in many respects, as a social crisis that was triggered through a massive change in the economy, namely the importation of, of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of slaves into the Roman Empire that undercut the, the farmer class, the, the plebeians, 
that had mo- mostly been doing the fighting that had expanded the republic in the first place. Yeah. Right? You know, post-Gaul, post-Carthage, you you had the emergence of political demagogues that that used legitimate grievances from the economic front. I'm thinking of the Gracchi brothers here in order to push their agenda. And so I, I think that politically the conditions are not quite there, but they're very, very close to us getting either a Cincinnatus or a Caesar. In yeah. fact, actually, I think I think more likely Sola. Sola. I was I was living. Yeah. yeah, you and I are on the same page there. I think that we're more likely to get a Sola than a Caesar, in part because I, I think what would happen on the political front is somebody making a multitude of changes in an attempt, possibly good faith, possibly somewhat driven by their own own political self interest, maybe a combination of the two, um, to to fix the problem not realizing that these changes are actually going to then bring about a Caesar type figure. But likewise, I also think that I don't think we're, we're destined to it a, a year ago when we did our, our right wing backlash episode a year ago, I was very black pilled in the sense that I, I thought we're just guaranteed. We're going to, we're going to end up with a Caesar, if not worse, yeah. we're going to go into full blown authoritarianism. It's either going to be the left dominating us and we're going to get, get a Stalin like figure or the right's going to dominate us and we're going to get a Caesar. And, and then Javier Malay came along. And that gave me some hope that, you know, we actually might get a Cincinnatus type figure yeah. or, or we, we might actually get a Cicero type figure. I, I, I don't think that Malay is actually in the Cicero mold because Cicero was part of the political elites within Rome. Yeah. He, he brought up some legitimate points, but he was still, he represented, he emerged from a political force that most people rightfully blamed for causing many of the problems. Whereas I don't think Malay has, has come out of the establishment, right? Yeah. He's been against the establishment from the beginning. So I, I, Javier Malay is very unique within yes, world but, politics. But the fact is, is that in a state like Argentina, where they had almost 200% inflation, where they had 40% poverty, right? In, in, a, in a country like this, that it used to be one of the richest countries in the world, the fact that they didn't get a Caesar. They got a guy who got into office, wielded the power, but he wielded the power in a way that that mitigated the government's role over people's lives rather than expanded it. He's yeah. using every tool that the Peronists have accumulated in the office of the presidency over the last 70 years or so. He's using all of those tools, but he's using all of those tools to deconstruct the government's power over the over the people and over the economy rather than accumulate and consolidate that power even more. And so that's what I mean by by a Cincinnatus type figure, a guy who's yeah. willing to use the tools. Unfortunately, this is where the Tolkien analogy kind of breaks down because Gandalf talks about how he can't use the ring for good because the ring is Sauron. In our case, the ring is power. And it's not that the ring is conscious in of itself that it is Sauron. What it is is that the, the power corrupts people over time. And, and so if there is no Mordor, the ultimate best case scenario, and it's very hard to get it, is a Cincinnatus type figure that wields it for good and doesn't allow it to corrupt themselves and well, then sets the ring aside once the job is done. So that way nobody else can wield it in order to consolidate power again. And well, I would say that's let me, let me, really let me, rare. Let me say one thing on that that I think is a little bit different. Because remember, Cincinnatus, yeah, he wielded power, but he actually wielded power, he wielded power within the structure for which it was intended. So that that's where I think the difference is, right? That's why I wouldn't say this is about wielding the the ring as much as I would say that it's like no, he's still doing it within he's still doing it within the structure that exists. I I, I think I almost think of the ring as, as something that's perverse in its very nature, right? And that that's why it's inherently corrupting. And and I so I, I do think there's a distinct. I don't want to go too far down. Like, no, no, <laughs> Lord I, of the Rings I, lore. I get but, what you mean. I mean to yeah. use the analogy uh, to to use something that's not an analogy. 
Um, Sola would be an example of, yes. of going outside the system in an yes. attempt to to fix a problem and then not realizing that that by going outside that because he went outside the system oh, big, yeah, time, big time, right? Uh, but by going outside that system, you've actually now laid the groundwork for a true authoritarian type figure to come and stay in yeah. charge because Sola also let go of power eventually with the expectation that the Republic would continue on running once all of these changes that he's made have taken place. But in reality, what he did was he simply laid the groundwork for Octavian to come along and make himself Augustus. Yeah. And so I, I think that on the political front where the, the conditions are not quite there yet for us to either be at that, that flashpoint where we either get a, a Cincinnatus or a Caesar type figure. I think we're very close, but I don't think we're quite there yet. And the reason why is because on the financial front, I don't think we're quite there yet in the sense that we don't have the sovereign debt crisis going on. We don't well, let's, have let's, I don't, let's not go too far down that because there's one other thing I want to say with that. So let me, let me okay. cut you off here real quick because we're going to go to one other component and then we're going to move into kind of that fourth category that I've been hinting at at the beginning here. And that is, I want to talk about some of the unknowns, right? Like these are the major events that could take place within a relatively short period of time that could completely upset the timeline one way or another. And the, the real question will be who will be best positioned in that moment to essentially take advantage? Will, will it be, will it be woke progressives? Will it be the authoritarian right? Right. Or will it be something else? So, the, but before I do that, and, and the reason why this is going to be the perfect segue into that portion is the area where I do see the most hope right now, and I think it has the greatest impact, is on the educational side, right? So we've already talked about the conditions. Public schools are in a lot of trouble right now. Higher ed in a lot of trouble right now. I think this is by design, not by accident. Again, if you if you want to look at some some interesting research on this, the Marxification of Education by James Lindsay, I think is an interesting one. I'd love to have him on the podcast at some point. Uh, but Corey DeAngelis, Christopher Rufo has done a good job here. But like I said before, there's already people are already taking action. COVID in in a way that you know, <laughs> COVID did more to advocate for homeschool and private school than than any sort of advertisement you would see from the homeschooling community or or the the private school community. It was just one of those things where it was like, oh my gosh. Because one, people saw right away how the, the government could manipulate information to essentially shut down your school, that powerful teachers unions would would work overtime to keep the schools shut down long before there, there was legitimate scientific or, or health reasons to do so. They looked at it as a nego negotiating tip or negotiating chip. And then on top of that, when people were actually seeing what was happening within their classrooms, because now they could observe it when, when school was taken online, they're like, what is this? And, and of course, some of the exposure of other things as well. Now, there's a lot of people that will say, well, yes, and that's why we need to be politically active with our school boards and politically active with our state legislators and politically active. Yes, not disagreeing with that. I'm just telling you it's not sufficient. It's not even close to being sufficient. Let, let's say you're the, you're the best advocate in the world and you get your entire school board changed out and you're in a, in a place like the Commonwealth of Virginia where local school boards have a great deal of authority. Great. You, you, you do all of that and you have a great deal of authority and then you get a new governor or then you get a new general assembly and they start to pass down unfunded mandates, which you are now required because we live in a Dillon rule state to implement. Right? And you, you don't need to know all the specifics of Dillon rule and whatnot. I'm just trying to say that once again, 
You, you might have thought you've won that battle, and you need to understand that I use Idaho as an example. Idaho has an incredibly conservative state legislature. They passed all the rules that you would think you would want to see in order to prevent some of the garbage that was going on in their public school system, and then James O'Keefe rolls in there with a hidden camera, and the next thing you know, they're still doing the same stuff they were doing before. They're just calling it by a different name, and the reason why is because in many of these institutions, and I'm not trashing all teachers. I'm not trashing all administrators. I'm simply saying that in many of these cases, cases, they have been educated in, in a higher education setting, which is used the pedagogy of the oppressed and critical pedagogy and the idea that you know education is just another front on this war to be able to try to open kids' minds to, to the, the notion of the horrible white supremacist, patriarchal, capitalistic systems, which are you know hurting marginalized peoples at the expense of the oppressor or at the benefit of the oppressor. It, it, if you if even a, a small fraction of your teachers and your and your administrators have bought into that worldview on some level, well, then pass whatever laws you want. If they still believe it's their moral obligation to make sure that this sort of interpretation of reality is getting through within the classroom, then they're going to do it. And and again, one of their favorite things to say is, well, show me in the curriculum where that exists. And what you start to understand when you look at things like Paulo Freire, who, who you know pushed pedagogy of the oppressed, it's not as if they're setting up, you know, a high school textbook on on how to push Marxism, all right? It's it's not like that's what's going to get adopted within your your classroom. No, no, it's going to be very very different. They're going to go through and they're going to they're going to ask students to consider certain words and consider certain things, and they're going to they're going to ask certain themes, and they're going to add a political you know component to that theme, and then they're going to have larger discussions. And the next thing you know, your your kid's going to be coming home repeating things or believing things, not because it was there on page sixty seven of the textbook or page four of the syllabus, but because it's an integral part of the way that teachers have been taught to think about their role as educators. And so again, that that's the condition that you will find yourself in, not in every classroom, maybe not necessarily in every school, but it is coming more and more predominant. I don't, I don't care where you live. If you think your school is more conservative than it was five years ago and that that school would be more conservative than it was 10 years before that you're out of your mind. That's just not the case. And so the question that you have to ask yourself is that even if you get some concessions, even if you win a school board, even if you get a new you know, state legislature, even if you get a new governor, it doesn't matter. Your teachers are still going through the same credentialing institutions to be able to go into that classroom. And, and that influence is becoming more powerful within higher ed, not less powerful. And so even if you do get meaningful change along the political aspect, it, it might not amount to much when it comes to the classroom. But the good news is, right? Those are the conditions. The good news is, is there are more actions than you can that you can take than ever before. There's more resources available to you than ever before to be able to homeschool your kids or be able to put your kids in a co-op. And there's a lot of people that will say, Nick, you know, we can't afford to do that. And I understand that some people may be within that, may be there. But I will say this: please understand when we started homeschooling, it's not because we were wealthy, right? There were sacrifices associated. To, to choosing homeschooling as opposed to a different mechanism or method. There, there were things we didn't get to have, trips we didn't get to take, a house that we would have loved to have that we didn't get. But again, all I can tell you is the benefits that we have realized from being able to have that additional time with our children more than makes up for whatever we might have sacrificed in order to have that. And, and there is nothing more there is nothing more wonderful and nothing you will appreciate more than to watch your children. Again, my oldest is 21, my next is 18, my youngest is 16. 
But to watch your children have a good relationship with you, a good relationship with each other, a good re- to be able to effectively interact, to be confident in what they believe, not simply because mom and dad told them to, but because they've actually gone through the process of studying it themselves and looking at it and being able to discuss these things in a safe environment where we still challenge them. And so I would just tell you, again, if we're talking about an action that is probably more valuable than I would argue anything else we've talked about, because here's what you need to understand, and please hear me when I say this, because I get people all the time going, stop telling you, stop telling people to take their kids out of school. That doesn't help the schools. Your kid's job is not to be a positive benefit on the school. Your kid's education is supposed to be a positive aspect for them. And you can take control of that in ways that you probably never imagined, because in part, you've been taught to believe you can't do it. You don't possess the requisite education. You don't possess the requisite finances. I'm going to tell you right now, with with probably very few exceptions, there is no resource that they are getting within a public school right now that is worth the price you will pay, both for the sort of socialization they are getting within government-run schools, as well as some of the stuff that is showing up within their school libraries and their curriculum. I, I don't see any advantage that they are conveying that is worth the cost of the other things that they are currently being exposed to. And so take control of that back for yourself and for your family and for your kids. Because again, here's the other thing that is wonderful that you're absolutely going to love. We, we've got a, we've got an episode coming out here shortly with Matt Boudreau. Matt Boudreau, he was in the school system, right? He was a principal. He was in higher ed. He did all of the things and he looked at it. And when he was starting to have kids, he's like, I'm not subjecting my kids to this. And he, and he started to come and he asked some of the best questions and offers some of the best solutions possible for parents, whether or not you can afford something, you know, relatively expensive or whether you're at a point where it's like, Nick, I, I just need, I, I just need what I need in order to try to get by, um, in, in order to make sure that I can, I can help my kids with their education. Because I, I am telling you right now, 50 years ago, it would have been so much harder to get all the 10 years ago it would have been harder to get all the resources together. Today it is it is easier than it has ever been from an educational standpoint. I realize that for some people financially it's very difficult to maybe only have one income. But all I would say is before before you allow yourself to be convinced that you can't do it or you can't afford it or the the resources aren't necessary or you're going to set your kids up for failure, I would ask yourself this, who's convincing you of that? Because I, I've noticed in myself that the, the pressures to, to be able to say various things to other parents about maybe what college your kid is going to or, or you know, what grade they're in or what, what they you know, got on the last you know, whatever test or whatever it was, none of that, none of that is worth, again, the value of that relationship and teaching your kids things like you know, honor and respect and genuine critical thinking and genuine entrepreneurship. And putting themselves, putting them in a position where they feel confident about their future. So, again, I would just encourage people to do that. And and again, I'm I'm going to hijack that one because we got to go to our last. Yeah, phase I was about to I ask to you, t- what do you mean by unknowns? So here's the unknowns, and the unknowns are all. You know, obviously, we predicted various things about things like sovereign debt crisis and and what that means, because there are certain things that can kick things off in a way where all of a sudden this goes into hyperspeed and the conditions change rapidly overnight. And the question is, is, okay, what happens under those conditions? And, you know, how do you position yourself to be in a position to be able to take care of your family? And again, potentially help, you know, save your community, save your, your state, save your commonwealth, save your country, et cetera. So. I want to throw out, I, I just want to do a couple unknowns, all right? So 
the first unknown, and I want you to speak about this, Christian, because you you talk about this is like the economics is what takes the economics is what takes civil disobedience to revolution, right? When when you can't put when when not only can you you know not put the food, but you can't even find the food. People things can go really really bad really really quickly as soon as people get start to get really really hungry. So when we talk about it, I want you to briefly explain. What is a sovereign debt crisis, right? Explain it to me like I'm 10, right? What's a sovereign debt <laughs> crisis? And what do you see? How do you think people, you know, basically prepare to, to go into that situation and come out the other side, you know, all right? So a, a sovereign debt crisis is, is basically the government's inability to pay its own bills. Now, the counter argument, and you get this from advocates for modern monetary theory, MMT, the counter argument from that school is that, well, when the government has control over its own currency, there will never be a circumstance in which it can't pay its own bills because it can simply print the money in order to pay the bills. But what they leave out conveniently is that there is a cost to be paid, both metaphorically and literally, in the form of printing the money to pay your bills. Ultimately, you're still all roads lead to Rome. You're still going to get to a catastrophe. You're just going to get there through a different mechanism. So a sovereign debt crisis that results in default means that interest rates go through the roof and the economy basically goes kaput because the government has now defaulted on its loans, which is – I mean the United States hasn't done that since like the Articles of Confederation and the American Revolution. But – that's never actually going to happen. You you get some people that say like, well, the U.S. should just default on its debt. It, well, it never has to. First off, that yeah. would be that would be a disaster. It it, it would be a disaster yeah. for different reasons. But I I don't even really want to spend the time talking about that scenario because that scenario will never happen because the United States does have a monopoly on its own currency. It'll just print more and pay. It, it. will simply print money in order to pay the bills, but. What that does is is that it increases the amount of money in circulation, which then decreases the purchasing power of the money in circulation. So let me stop you right here. So let's say that that happens, right? They, we've gotten to a point where the government just defaults on its debt, and sure, it's printing more money and it's paying stuff. But you know, again, it's it's you know whatever a thousand dollars for a loaf of bread at this point, and so our, our currency is effectively worthless. And what that also means is that. You're not paying the military or you're not paying the police or, you know, again, you have that kind of structural breakdown. So, so it's you know, Weimar again, Germany. Yeah. And there's yeah. two instances where this, where this arguably happened, massive economic crisis in, in Weimar Germany. More people are familiar. Well, actually a lot of people are familiar with both, but they somehow, I think a lot of people think that they're kind of the same thing and they're not because they took place over many different years. So a lot of people think that um, like the hyperinflation period in Germany is what led to the Nazis. And that's actually not true. Germany went through a hyperinflation period in the early 1920s after World War I, in part because the government was printing money to pay the debt that it had taken on from the war and the reparations that the Treaty of Versailles imposed on it. And it resulted in the mark just being inflated into the stratosphere. And I mean, there's, there's stories of people you know, like finding things in their attic that they, you know, from their house that they bought five years earlier and then walking out onto the street and going to a pawn shop and getting paid 50 million marks for it and then going over to the bank and plopping the money down and boom, they just paid off their mortgage for the price of a bag of marbles. Yeah. But um, <laughs> like, and likewise, them going to the store and seeing that the price of bread is 50 million marks as well. Yeah. And, and, and so like, that's one crisis. 
There was another one, though, post-Great Depression, where Germany also went into an economic crisis. And that's the one that led to the Nazis. And those were separate instances. The, the, the German one was they went into a sovereign debt crisis because the Americans were giving them loans to then pay their, their um, reparations to the French and British, mostly the French, um, from World War I. And, you know, it was like the Dawes plan and stuff like that. And what happened was is that obviously when the United States fell into the Great Depression, there weren't a lot of American banks that were willing to loan money to the Germans. And so the Germans were un unable to meet their debt obligations, not just the reparation obligations, but just any debt obligations. And the economy went into one crisis after another. And each subsequent chancellor of the German government had this idea that that we're going to fix this problem. Like Bruning was was really the, the big guy in all of this, where he like called a snap election because he wanted to increase his parliamentary majority so that way he could actually do what he thought needed to be done and cut a bunch of government spending in order mm -hmm. to deal with the crisis because the SPD weren't willing to negotiate on, on cutting government spending. And unfortunately, in Bruning's case, his snap election resulted in the Nazis basically <laughs> wiping out the opposition and that just you know that set germany on a path to utter destruction and tyranny yeah. right and so when i and i think that's that's kind of the point right is that if you if you reach if you reach that sort of if you reach that sort of crisis there's going to be a lot of people stepping forward with with solutions one solution is going to be we just need to nationalize everything. The government needs to take over the economy, right? That's that's the leftist, that's the communist solution. You you're going to have anybody uh, somebody else that basically doesn't go that route. But again, the, one of the reasons why people call fascism a right-wing reaction to communism is, is not because there's massive differences with respect to the way that communists and fascists view the economy, but, but rather it's, it's the question of, of, you know, the, the kind of the international component of communism versus the, the more nationalist component of fascism. Um, that's why sometimes that, that, you know, that, that nationalist thing gets associated with that because it's a different type of response, e even though, you know, again, a, a right wing or a reactionary, uh, you know, response to something like that might be, uh, well, we don't want to be communists and we got to do everything that we can to fight the communists, but the government still needs to do something. And so the government provides kind of like a heavy handed right wing authoritarianism, uh, even though their economic policy is, is actually amazingly similar in many respects. Yes. And, and so, like, a, a sovereign debt crisis is one of these, like, unknowns. It's unknown in the sense that I cannot tell you when it will happen. But I can well, tell you me, that it is almost certain to happen unless something drastic changes at the federal level, which I think is very unlikely. Well, and I think it's also important to understand that, you know, the, the reason why the sovereign debt crisis gets so um, dangerous is because regardless of who's in charge, even if they claim to be from the right or they claim to be from the left, people's, people's tolerance for a strongman at that point uh, goes up quite a bit. And, and as long as somebody's willing to offer some sort of solution or in, in some cases just make them feel better that it's not their fault, um, they're, they're willing to tolerate quite a bit and they're looking for, they're looking for scapegoats. They're looking for the bad guys, right? And it's not even scapegoats in the sense. Sometimes there are people that are genuinely responsible for it. But again, when people start to get nervous and, and hungry, bad things happen. Now, Again, the, the, the good scenario is that if you do get to a position where it starts to get really bad and people properly diagnose the problem, right? That's where you get something like Argentina, where you get a Javier Malay. Now, again, I, I am very happy with what Javier Malay is doing so far and what seems to be the reaction from the Argentinian people. I am still, as always, you know, I, I'm going to reserve final judgment on this because I want to see 
how they respond to Javier Malay, how Javier Malay responds. But so far, it I think I think people are giving him the the space and time necessary. And I'm not talking about like decades. I'm talking about years to be able to make some of these corrections, remove these regulations, and and see the positive results. And what that's where the opportunity is, right? The opportunity in something of like a really really bad economic downturn is that if people have properly diagnosed the problem, right? Or or even if Let's say they haven't even properly understood all the problems, but they've chosen the guy that wants that doesn't want to give more government power that that you know has the authority necessary in order to reduce the sort of taxes, regulations, and government intervention that has been an absolute drain, a leech on hardworking people. They give that guy the power, and they see the results. What's so beautiful about that is that they they associate the positive results with the correct policies. Because unfortunately, a lot of times what happens is both Republicans and Democrats have manipulated monetary policy, manipulated spending policy in such a way to where they see the benefits one side and they say, oh, this must have been because of this guy. And it's not properly associated with the actual – one of the things I love about Javier Malay is that he hasn't just gone out there and said, I am responsible for X, Y, and Z. I think he's actually gone to the trouble of explaining both the problem and the solution. And so – we actually have a chance for the solution to be closely associated with the pers- person implementing the policies. And, and hopefully, you know, I, I think that's the benefit. I mean, would you, we got to move on to two more, yeah. but would you agree with that? No, no, I, 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 I think I largely agree with what you were saying. I, I, I also think that if it is, and I, I, this I'm utterly convinced of still that it is effectively inevitable, inevitable that, that we will end up in a sovereign debt crisis. I just can't tell you when. Yeah, we're yeah. dealing with an economy that's larger than anything the world has ever seen. The United States. And we economy. are the world's reserve currency. We are the world's too. reserve currency. Yeah. These things are once in a millennia type event. Yeah. I mean, the last example that I can think of that is close to this is the the crisis of the third century with the Roman Empire, mm-hmm. where Rome they didn't have a sovereign debt crisis because such a, a phenomenon, you know. They didn't have the modern banking system, right? But they did have an inflationary crisis where they debased their currency and it created a ton of problems. But that's that's the most recent example I can think of of a country as powerful or in a position similar to the United States that went through such an economic crisis. So we're talking about a type of an event that that does not happen that often, right? And so I cannot tell you when it will happen. But again, unless Washington, D.C. gets spending under control, it will happen. I just just can't tell you when. I will say this, though. There is a bit of optimism to be had here because if we have a Malay-type figure that's, that's kind of in the wings waiting to politically take advantage of this not for himself but for yeah. that those principles we can avoid a caesar type situation we can avoid a right wing authoritarian type situation you were saying in our what if the right goes bad podcast and and at some point we need to do another podcast literally titled why the woke will never win because yeah. you yeah. said something very briefly in this podcast and you and i have had very detailed conversations about this that have lasted hours about why no matter what happens the woke will ultimately lose guaranteed mm-hmm. they will never win because yeah. they will either be useful idiots they will be the red guard right where where the left takes over and then the left goes authoritarian and they will purge those people yuri besmanov warned us about this in the 1980s he even said all these people out there all these beautiful orators and dissidents and everything they will be crushed like cockroaches the second that the actual marxists get their teeth in power 
those people will be purged immediately. And we have yeah. abundant historical examples of it. The, the woke idiots out there that somehow think that, that they will be doing poetry in the commune after the revolution takes over. No, they will be lined up against a wall. All yeah. of the intersectional people, all of the, the LGBTQ people, well, like, like the, they, they're being used by authoritarian leftists who will then purge them when they take over. But that's, that's actually their best case scenario because that's assuming the left even wins. There's another scenario where the right wins and the right rightfully blames these people for bringing society to the point of collapse and then they enact a terrible retribution on them because they rightfully blame them for bringing society to the brink of collapse. And so they lose in that scenario as well. And even if the classical liberals win, they also lose because they get their privileges taken away and they don't have their DEI and SEG, ESG Well, honestly though, honestly though, I actually think that is the the best course of action because one of the things that I think is Here's the part where, again, some people are going to get mad at me, but I'm sorry, I stand by this. Um, Many people that we would describe as woke are also victims of of the very philosophy that they're putting out there. Uh, When you look at the number of people that are are dealing with massive amounts of of confusion or abandonment or mental health issues or or whatever else it might be, and we can be as frustrated as as we want to be, and and rightfully so in many cases. Um, By the same token, though... (laughs) When you look at the number of people who are obviously confused and in pain and who are now being utilized for, for a political purpose for which they might not even be you know fully aware. In fact, I think most of them are not. Um, the, the best thing that can possibly happen is taking away the, the, the false narrative. It, it's, it's taking away the false sense of community, the false narrative, the false identify, uh, identity. And, and again, and, and not in a sense, not in an authoritarian sense where it's now like, we're going to, we're going to punish you if you believe these things, but we're simply going to say, no, we're, we're not making these allowances where we require that the rest of civilization join you in your delusion. No, we're not, we're not going to let you go into these spaces that, that again, are, are specifically for women, for instance. And so that, that ultimately is, is not a – they lose in the sense that, okay, the, the, the political entity that was seeking to utilize them for their own purposes is no longer there and no longer enticing them with certain benefits that could have never been sustained in the long run anyways. But it, it's the fastest road to recovery at that point, right? So there's, there's a couple other ones I want to talk about. I, I think the other uh, big one, and we've discussed this before, is this whole concept of – Okay, you don't have a sovereign debt crisis. You still have problem with monetary and fiscal policy and all that, but you you get this overwhelming, um, you know. Again, you have a major political party, and in our case, it's the Democratic Party that that honestly, for all the talk of again, mud democracy, honestly sees the Constitution as a positive impediment to what they would like to do. They don't like the they don't really they don't really care for federalism. They think the federal government should you know dictate in any host of of their social um, you know cultural and, and economic policies from on high at the federal government. And if they were to take Congress, if they were to take the presidency, and if they were to stack the Supreme Court, I think I, I think one of the things that you could see as a potential response to that would be the the reinvigorating of the federalist system. 
And I think we've already seen demonstrations with respect to you're seeing it with Governor Abbott at the border. You're seeing it with Governor DeSantis in, in Florida, because one of the things that we talked about earlier is, is there a political entity that is necessary in order for people to rally around an alternative to what they currently have? And as much as we might not like the reality of that, it does seem to be the case as we look at human history. And one of the things that's unique about the United States and our federal system is that states do provide a mechanism where, again, saying I'm going to push back against the federal government doesn't mean you abandon any sense of, of government structure anymore. It simply means I'm, I'm trading the authority that I, I used to you know, respect for the federal government, and I'm now saying that, nope, I'm, I'm now identifying with, with the state. Now, the, the obvious issue there is that you don't have the same um, – you know, there's, there's a, a massive urban-rural – divide, you know, ideological divide. It's not necessarily just, you know, states. Um, but having said that, I do think that we're seeing what will be interesting for me to see over the next couple of years is to, to determine how many people vote with their feet and then move to other states. And what I think could happen as a result of that, let's say within the next 10 to 15 years, I could see a scenario where enough people really do decide like I'm done. Um, you know, Vir Vir uh, right now in Virginia, we're in this really interesting situation where for years, Virginia was fairly consistent. And then now we're at a point where um, even with the barest of majorities, right, you know, Democrats have a one seat majority in the House, one seat majority in the Senate. If they were to take the governor, it, it's not as if you would see a bunch of, you know, slightly left of center legislation crossing over. No, no, no. If they It'd have a California. one seat majority in the House, one seat majority in the Senate and a governor who will sign it. They will California the entire state and they'll do it with a smile on their face. And, and the question that people will have to start to ask themselves, because we just went through this, right? They had that um, back in, in 2020. They had that. And, and again, it wasn't just this, this subtle shift to the left. It was a massive lunge to the left. And then there was a reaction. And what did the reaction give you? Well, it gave you a Republican House and a Republican governor and a Republican AG and a Republican lieutenant governor. But they still kept the Senate by two votes. And the end result is, is that we were able to pull back almost nothing that they had done before. And then the next election cycle came around and they took they lost a seat in the Senate. They only control the Senate by one now, but they took the House by one after redistricting, you know, or, or you know, partially as a res result of redistricting. And so now we're in a situation where once again, you know, they're, they're dropping pretty you know, again, very, very left wing or left wing bills. Now we got a governor to veto it, but in, in, in two years, you're going to have a, a, a different house of delegates. You're going to have a different governor. And if they take all three, once again, they're going to continue to shove Virginia in a direction that I think a lot of Virginians don't understand how bad it can get in such a quick period of time. So let's take that scenario. Let's say you have enough people in Virginia that say, not only do not only is this not the Virginia I remember, but I don't see any practical political mechanism for getting it even part of the way back. And they get up and they move. So in that scenario, you have more people leaving those states, which they feel have become, um, you know, un unmanageable in that sense. They they don't see a political path, and so now they're actually going to move to a state that they think. Um, it, it's going to better reflect their their values economically, socially, culturally, educationally, et cetera. The end result is, is that you find yourself in a position where you, you may be handing over, and I'm not 
you know, and I'm not saying that people shouldn't move as a result of this, but you may be handing over institutions like the Senate um, or like the House to the other side. Um, and, and through the Electoral College, you, you may end up in a position, too, where you, you get big enough majorities in the House, the Senate, the presidency. And if, it's, and if it's the sort of people like Gavin Newsom, they're not going to have a problem stacking the Supreme Court. And now, you've again, you've run into an issue where you have a block of states that are more overwhelming, like they have enough power at that state level to say, absolutely not, we're not, we're not submitting to this. Now you run into that situation where we've discussed this before, the whole concept of nullification and interposition. Nullification is the state of Tennessee refuses to enforce that federal law within our, our borders. Texas or, is like currently you see, engaged in interposition right now on the border. Yeah, Texas is. Te- Texas has actually deployed the Texas National Guard to not only stop the border, but from what I understand, they've also prevented certain federal agents from getting to certain portions on the border. And that is, that's what we call interposition. It's not just, it's not just the state is ignoring the federal government. It's now the state is actively engaging in interposition against the federal government. And those are the sort of things that, that causes the federal government to ask the question, how bad do I want to do this? And every once in a while in American history, that has been done before to determine, okay, federal government, how bad do you want this? Because we're about to show you how bad we don't want you to do it. And the federal government has a choice to either back off or to reassert itself. And, and the question is, the, the question in that moment is, what happens? Do you have disintegration of, of the United States as we currently know it? Do you have the federal government backing, you know, eventually backing down or deciding it's not worth it? Like what what takes place in that moment? And that's something that I could see becoming a a real probability within five, 10, 15 years. And again, I don't say this as someone that wants this to happen. I would I would much prefer that the Democratic Party understand that wielding that sort of federal control and complete contradiction to the Tenth Amendment, to the Ninth Amendment, to the you know, limited and enumerated powers of the federal government is not the proper role, but I don't see them. I don't see them you know, buying into that philosophy anytime soon. I agree that like one of these potential unknowns outside of sovereign debt crisis is a showdown between states and the federal government. Um, th- that is one area that I think has been a little bit overlooked because every, yeah. all the attention is now just in D.C., right? You know, everybody, when they think about politics, they just think about Congress and the presidency. And and let's be honest, mostly the presidency at this point, too. That's yeah. how much power has been consolidated in Washington, D.C. But there's something to be said about how when push comes to shove, even though we've done incredible, tremendous damage to it over the last 160 years or so, we do still have a federalist system. Now, we've had you know we've done again tremendous damage to it look at the aftermath of the civil war i've always said that you know my my one of one of the biggest things that i'm upset about the southern fire eaters for pre-civil war was is that they they wielded these tremendous weapons or, or defense mechanisms that were baked into the constitution and our founding documents and the writings of our founding fathers like the virginia and kentucky resolutions and whatnot they wielded those things to preserve slavery and in doing so, they've now tainted them and, and you know, they, they shot their shot with secession and lost on the altar of slavery. And now that's been discredited. But you know what? It hasn't entirely been discredited because nullification and interposition and potentially even the threat of secession 
is is still lurking there. It's just been ignored for so long because the aftermath of the Civil War. Likewise, the 17th Amendment also did a number on federalism by taking the power out of the hands of the state legislators when it came to selecting U.S. senators. But even with all of that said, we do still have a federalist system. Mm -hmm. The fact that what's going on, and I think it's like Eagle Pass in Texas, where the, as you, you were talking earlier, the state of Texas is standing up to the federal government right now. Well, now we don't know if they're going to cave. They could very well cave. It's let's be honest. Republicans love caving, but um, <laughs> it, 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 so we don't know how it will end, but there is something to be said about how the fact that things like this are happening is indicative of the fact that yes, there is a potential that one of these unknown events might not be sovereign debt crisis. It might be a state like Texas or Florida or Tennessee or Idaho or, or some very conservative state that has just had enough of this decides to tell the federal government to go pound sand. And then the federal government gets to decide if they want to escalate or not. And if the federal government escalates and the state retaliates by escalating in turn, mm-hmm. well, then things start getting a little bit interesting. And yeah. so- I, yes, I think that that is absolutely one of these other unknowns. I also think that that another potential unknown on the international stage is something like a war. Yeah, We saw what happened after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We saw what happened especially after October 7th in Israel and Gaza. I mean, yeah. that the mask came off on the left. We, we now know these people are lunatics and they're dangerous. And no, they openly will celebrate violence being perpetuated against a group of people if they think that group of people are oppressors. No, yeah. I mean, nothing is off the table now. They will hold rallies in support of the Houthis for yeah. crying out loud as long as it's against the people that we think are oppressors. I mean, mm-hmm. that has really shown us to the, the degree of, 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 of the madness that has now gripped the left. And so I think that a, another foreign event flashpoint terrorist attack war that is another potential unknown there's there's yeah. so many things in play there especially going on in yemen with the fact that the iranians are heavily engaged with the houthis the fact that hezbollah has yet to necessarily go up to that point like the houthis have in lebanon there's also the whole situation with taiwan and in china it's it it really is looking like especially in the aftermath of the presidential election that was just held in taiwan where the DPP won again a third term mm-hmm. unprecedented in the history of Taiwan post-transition to democracy, where a single party has won three presidential elections in a row. They're not about to join China, especially under yeah. a CCP rule. They don't even want to join China if China got rid of the CCP. Yeah, And, and so, like— they're inching closer to not not declaring independence because their position is, well, we already are an independent country, but they're inching closer to completely shutting the door to unification at all. And and that is a, a red line for the CCP because they claim yeah. the island. And now we can say whether or not that claim is bogus or not. I think that it's certainly bogus that the CCP claims Taiwan. I think that you could certainly make the argument that Taiwan is Chinese, but Taiwan does not belong to the Communist Party and it never has. Yeah. But that doesn't matter. The fact is, is that it really is looking like, I mean, Xi Jinping came out and was like, it is inevitable that we will reunite with, with Taiwan. I will see it happen or or it will happen soon. And again, like there's a, there's a chance that that could be attempted. And we've done whole podcasts on if it's possible for China to pull it off and you don't think it is, but regardless of whether or not they pull it off. I think it's very unlikely. Yeah. It's very unlikely they can practically pull it off. I think it's unlikely too, but regardless of whether or not they pull it off, that's also an unknown because that would almost certainly drag the United States into a conflict. Yeah, no, there, there's no question and what it would mean for Russia and Iran and a lot of other things. And 
Well, listen, I, I, we've got a lot. We're almost, I think we're, gosh, we're like two and a half hours into this. That's been a great episode. <laughs> and I, 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 knew this would, I knew this would go a while. I, I want to I close it up here with just kind of some final thoughts. Um, the, the bottom line is, again, we, we don't discuss these things to, to black pill anyone because, uh, honestly, it, as I look at the, the course of human history, I think we still need to respect the fact that we, we do live in a country that, you know, by comparison, affords us a great deal of freedom, affords us a great deal of opportunities, is still economically and militarily strong. The thing we need to be aware of is that we can't let that lull us into this false sense of security that it's inevitable, right? The, these things are not inevitable. and In fact, what history generally teaches is, is the opposite is inevitable, but it doesn't have to happen in our time, right? It, 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 it's all a question of whether, what do we do with the time that God has given us and, and how do we respond to the events as we see them taking place? And the thing I want people to understand is that there, there is a lot to be encouraged about because, again, I do think one of the biggest mistakes that, again, whether you want to call them woke, whether you want to call them neo-Marxist, whether you want to call them just you know, critical theorists or postmodernists or whatever it is, I think they moved too far too fast. I think they they woke up a lot of people to what is going on, not because this is some sort of grand conspiracy theory, but because people have finally woken up to the fact that this is a question of of at least, at the very least, two competing worldviews. And their worldview isn't producing good results. And yeah, it may look like they've got a lot of power in politics and arts and entertainment and finance and everything else. And that's because they do. There's no question that they do. But ultimately, their ideas and their plans, they don't work. And the reason why they don't work is not necessarily because they, they cause sovereign debt crises or, or monetary crises or you know, wars. Yeah, those, those are all things. But the fundamental reason why they don't work is because they get it wrong with respect to who we are as people, who we are as individuals. Okay? We're, we're not just members of a collective. We're not just to be easy, so easily defined by, by our sexual identity or whatever else that they have conjured up as a distraction from the truth. And the truth is, and again, I believe this not only as a Christian, but I believe this because I think the overwhelming evidence speaks to it, is that we are individuals, but we're individuals which actually seek out community. And the people that embrace that and recognize that what that means is that everybody is entitled. I believe they're entitled to a certain degree of respect as a result of being created in the image of God. You may believe something different, but that conservative viewpoint or that liberty-focused viewpoint does recognize both the sovereignty of the individual combined with a desire for personal responsibility and a desire for relationship. And when people actually operate within a proper framework and a proper worldview, not in an attempt to try to impress or compel others to do what they want, but rather to be able to live free, take responsibility for one's actions, engage in society first and foremost from the standpoint of the family for men to embrace their roles as protectors and providers for women to be able to embrace their roles as, as mothers and as also as, as women that can achieve incredible things, but also embrace that ability to nurture that, that ability to be a, a moral compass with respect to the direction and the upbringing of children not necessarily to the exclusivity of doing other things professionally, but to embrace those roles both as, as, as man, as son, as husband, as father, as grandfather, as woman, as daughter, as sister, as mother, as grandmother. When we do those things, when we engage in voluntary interaction with one another and freedom of association, 
What we end up finding is not just a life that provides security and provides for prosperity. What we find is a life that actually gives us genuine meaning, which goes so far beyond the kind of collectivist lie that we've been fed by, by a culture that one minute dips into just unrestrained hedonism and the next minute dips into complete and utter depression and nihilism. And when we focus on what it is that we have to not only preserve, but also to provide in the way that we live our lives, raise our families, educate our children, run our businesses. I, I've said this a thousand times now on this podcast. I believe that ultimately ends up being the best argument we could possibly make for the worldview that we're trying to protect and preserve. And so we go through all of this on, on does, does the right have what it takes to actually make a comeback? Well, that's going to be entirely determined on, on us, <laughs> on whether or not we do it, on whether or not we believe enough in it to not just make an argument for it, but to actually live it out. And, and I have to tell you, the, the less I have focused on those areas of, of life that I, I have very little, con, very little control over, I don't abandon them altogether. I don't completely ignore them. But the more I focused on how can I be a better husband to my wife? How can I be a better father to my children? How can I be a, a better friend to the people that I care about? Uh, how can I be a, a better Christian in my relationship both to God and to my fellow human beings? And the more I develop the sort of skills and, and competence in a variety of areas that are not only necessary professionally uh, or necessary for resilience or necessarily in order to maintain a certain degree of independence from these government structures, the more I've done that in part because it's just fun to be able to develop both those capabilities and the relationships which come from the sort of transactions that you're able to have as a result of them. There's, there's nothing more powerful than being able to pour into somebody else's, somebody else's life in a way to where they call you up or when they see you, they say, when you said this or when you did this, it had an impact. Focus on those things. Don't ignore the other things that we, we still need to keep, keep in mind and that we still need to compete for and compete with. But the more focus that we put on actually making an impact where we can have the greatest impact, the more capability you're going to develop, the happier you're going to be. And eventually what you're going to find out is that those, those little victories in those areas that you of limited control that you have right now end up accumulating in your ability to have a much Im bigger impact in those other areas that you know we also need to address. So don't be discouraged by any of this. Be encouraged. Because I think more and more people are starting to, the, the, the curtain's been pulled back and more and more people are starting to recognize it. But the question that most of them have is, what do I do now? And if you can be the sort of person in your community that actually has some answer and can provide some direction, not simply because of a good argument you made, but by demonstrating how to do it because you are doing it, the better off you're going to be, the better off they're going to be, and eventually the better off the country is going to be as a result. So once again, thank you for joining us for this rather long episode. I hope you got a lot out of it. Please consider joining our community chat over there in Circle. It's going to be the, the uh, information is going to be there in the show notes. And once again, once again, while we're still in January, consider going over to goodranchers.com using promo code Nick, signing up for one of those subscriptions, support a good company that's providing a good product and is also supporting this show. Once again, thank you very much. And we'll see you next episode.